and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today's episode is one that actually kind of breaks one of my rules. Uh, we will talk about that in a second. It's a very big budget, very well-known movie, Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man movie from 2002, starring Tobey Maguire. And uh, for a variety of reasons, this is not the type of movie I generally feature on staff picks, and we'll get into that in a second. But I have a uh, guest here who talked me into it a while back. He's like, you know, nobody ever talks about that first Spider-Man movie anymore because there's been like, what, 150 reboots of Spider-Man since then? So people kind of forget what a big deal this first one was. So he's like, we really need to talk about it because there's a lot of interesting things coming from that first movie and a lot of things that came out of it, and it was very influential. So he talked me into it. He's like, you know, uh, because I always kind of have a soft spot for this movie, and I'm like, yeah, let's do a Spider-Man movie. That would actually be really fun. And it also, as if you guys have you listened to the show before, you know Sam Raimi is maybe my all-time favorite movie director. So it's not exactly twisting my arm to get me to talk about a Sam Raimi movie. So. Anyway, uh, I want to bring him on the show. I've never uh, had him on before. I've actually never met him before, even though I've known him for years through the online Survivor community. He's uh, much younger than me, 20 years younger than me, but a big uh, superhero movie fan. Grew up with this movie, has a lot of fondness for this movie in particular. Just really wanted to come on and talk about it. Welcome to Staff Picks, Joe Jennings. Thank you very much, Mario. It's an honor and a privilege. Now, was I accurate? You are a big superhero movie fan, right? Oh, oh yeah. I've seen so much superhero movies over the years, mostly a lot of Marvel stuff, some DC stuff as well. Really, I've really like my whole life has kind of like spanned the gamut of like superhero movies, starting from just like cheesy popcorn stuff to becoming like huge, big budget, artsy, big name actor fair. And really, I would argue that Spider-Man is really where it all kicks into high gear. Yeah. I'd agree with you, and that's that was my recollection as well. I'm like, superhero movies weren't really that big a recurring thing at the time, and then Spider-Man happened, and then all of a sudden they were everywhere. So this is the one that is either the cause of that or to blame for that. <laughs> well, even if you look back, like Spider-Man, it doesn't feel like a lot of like the the future superhero movies, but it it does like a lot of stuff like sets the mold in terms of like the story that's being told. But at the same time, you have Sam Raimi who has this significant Sam Raimi style, so there's a lot going on there as well. That's both for like the the classic, more cheesy movie fans, and for the superhero comic book movie fans like myself. So we're really attacking this from two different angles here. <laughs> okay, so give us a little history of who you are and kind of your history with Spider-Man as a character, because I know you are lobbying for this episode forever. You really wanted to talk about this one. Yeah, so I think Spider-Man for me, it's definitely like. I think when I look back to like my tastes and how I like approached media and stuff, this was like one of like the first things that really influenced me because I was six years old when this thing came out in theaters. And as we'll probably get into, this is like, this may or may not be the kind of movie you want a six year old kid to be watching. <laughs> but at the same time, like it definitely blew me away. There was, I don't think I've seen any movie like it when I saw it in theaters. So it's definitely important. Like, and for, like, Spider-Man itself, I knew little about the character when I was a kid. Like, I had a couple of video games about Spider-Man. I know there was some Spider-Man cartoons on TV, but I don't think I was that prepared for, like, what I was getting into. And that's kind of, that kind of relates to my argument 
not to say argument, more like my way of convincing Mario to uh, talk about the movie. Because really, when you think about it, Spider-Man, you don't really need to know a lot about Spider-Man to enjoy it. Like you, like it's very basic. Like you can just get in and go and have fun. He's a good entry-level Superman or superhero, is what you're saying. Right, right. It's it's like him, Batman, and and Superman. So I know the Batman and Superman had their stuff in like the 70s and 80s. Kind of fizzled out when he got into the 90s. But then Spider-Man came in, and, and that definitely blew the doors back open for like superhero movies in general. Now, were you a comic book fan at all? Not really. Like, I was six years old. I barely knew how to read then. <laughs> wait, wait, it's at six. You should know comic books. Come on, that's a d- developmental milestone. Oh, yeah, I knew, I knew comics existed, but, like, I wasn't going to the comic book store and buying stuff every week. Yeah, that's the one thing that comes up a lot with superhero movies is they always say, like, they always imply that everyone is out there reading comic books, and so they're so excited to see their favorite comic book on the screen. I don't think I ever knew anybody who actually read comic books. Like, I was aware they were there, but I never read them either. Right. right. And it's kind of interesting because, like, comic books, like, influence so much about, like, American culture in general. But, like, when you actually look at, like, the actual, like, numbers for how many people are reading comic book, I think it's, like, in, like, the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, if you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very much overstated how many people are actually out there reading comic books. Although, for all I know, maybe nowadays it's much higher because of there's so many superhero movies. <laughs> well, you could argue there's so many superhero movies that it's kind of getting exhausting. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because I, as I alluded to earlier to my listeners, I don't know if you guys are aware of if I've ever mentioned this on Staff Picks. There's a couple rules I have when it comes to modern movies because I'm kind of really picky with what I watch with modern movies. And one of my rules is no sequels. I don't watch sequels anymore. I don't watch reboots. I don't watch remakes. I can't stand franchises, anything that's just set up as part of a franchise. But my number one rule, and this is why it's so funny I'm doing Spider-Man, my number one rule is no goddamn superhero movies. I will not watch a superhero movie. I don't think I've seen one since spider-man 3 like 15 years ago because i'm so fed up that every movie is a superhero movie so that's why it's so funny that i have such an affinity for this movie and that we're actually talking about it <laughs> yeah it's interesting that you stopped at spider-man 3 because <laughs> i don't blame you for being turned off after that one <laughs> yeah i was like okay we've done enough spider-man i'm done with this we don't need to reboot this and then they started bringing out you know other superheroes like iron man which was you know apparently a big deal but like I knew a little about Iron Man before the movie. I'm like, he's not that interesting a character, so I don't really care. It's definitely the performance of like Robert Downey Jr. that puts that movie over the top. So, okay, so you say superhero movies in the modern era are exhausting. Can you elaborate a little on that? Like, did you start watching a lot of them and give up eventually? Like, what eventually broke you? Well, I think it's just, yeah, definitely like the, the volume of stuff you have to keep up with. That definitely weighs on you. Like, with how the Marvel brand is is doing itself now you have like you have tv shows on the disney uh uh streaming service that you have to watch you have uh movies coming out now uh i think they came out with like a new movie like this weekend called the eternals with like which is like a superhero group that barely anyone has ever heard of (laughs) and then uh i think like a month from now we're getting the newest spider-man movie (laughs) so so i'm just giving you a taste of like how insane this has gotten like Disney has caught on to the idea that superhero movies make money because, hey, nerds love this stuff. Yeah, 
And they do. That's the thing. These superhero movies are always a hit. So the studios love them. And that is one of my big beefs is that I grew up in the 80s and especially the 90s where there were so many unique, distinct, you know, one-time movies that I loved that I, I just cannot handle this reboot and remake and franchise culture that we're in now. Uh. I, know, I know it makes me sound old, but this is just me personally as a movie viewer that I have no interest in any of this. So I will sound very... Uh, uh, what, what's the right word here? Very uh, oblivious to how modern superhero movies are, and that's intentional because I don't see them. <laughs> now, now, I think one of the like the flaws like modern superhero movies that they they cater too much to the people who like obsessively follow them. Like they expect you to know so much about a, a superhero movie before going in. They plant all sorts of like little details that kind of depend on you knowing something about the character or, or having some sort of expectation going in. Because uh, I know for, like, the most recent Spider-Man movie, I've just just to give you a taste of how bad it's gotten, um, the plot of that is that in, in the newest Spider-Man movie, spoilers if <laughs> you care about that, but... <laughs> I'm good. The plot is that Sp- Spider-Man has his secret identity exposed. Everyone in the world knows he's Peter Parker, so he goes to the magician Doctor Strange to have his identity erased from everyone's mind, but then he gets cold feet and the, and the magic spell goes awry. And and then the whole conflict of the movie is that now villains from the other Marvel Spider-Man movies, including the ones before the reboots, are coming in. So you're going to have the Green Goblin in the newest movie. You're going to have Doctor Octopus in the newest movie. You're going to have uh, Electro, Jamie Foxx in this movie. It's, it's insane. Like, a person who has never seen Spider-Man before have started watching the Spider-Man movies recently, they're going to have all these people coming in. They're not going to understand why these are important. They're not going to like know how awesome Norman Osborn is in this movie because they may or may not have seen this movie. But to play devil's advocate from a movie producer's point of view, we already know everyone who watches these movies watches every single one of them. So they, they, that's, they can probably correctly assume that people already know this history. And that's, that's one of my beefs about it. Like, it's very an insular world. You have to know every single thing about it to really be a part of it. And I'm just, I'm just not invested. I'm just not going to do it. Right. I, I, don't, I don't blame you. Uh, you've, 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 you've bowed out gracefully. I won't blame you for not wanting to watch any of these other Superman superhero movies but it's definitely it's i I still like them don't get me wrong i feel i feel weird like we're knocking it but like i'm probably gonna see the new spider-man movie once it's out in theaters but yeah it's definitely different now you notice how it's how different it is it's just it's a different world there's a whole different mindset between movies and marketing and franchises that i was used to growing up and what i really established myself as a movie viewer and i you said i bowed out gracefully i don't think i bowed out gracefully at all because people always (laughs) often accuse me of being a grumpy old man who just doesn't adapt to the times old man yelling at clouds but i mean that's me i saw spider-man in 2002 because it was a spectacle because it was the first of something you'd never seen before. And I'm like, oh, that was cool. And then I stuck with it for a couple, and I'm like, all right, we've, done, we've seen three. We're good. Let's move back to real movies. But So that's where I stand. Yeah. I'd say that no one is better at spectacle in Hollywood than uh, Sam Raimi. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Okay. Before we do Sam Raimi, though, I want to talk about the history of superhero movies in Hollywood. Because oh, this, will be, this will be really interesting to people who are younger and are not aware of this. Now, are you aware of the very sordid past of 
how hard it was just to get Spider-Man to the big screen, let alone any superhero movie. Oh, yeah, they were they were trying to do this since the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's elaborate on that. So the first big superhero movie is Superman, the movie in 1978, where they plucked this unknown actor, Christopher Reeve, out of nowhere, made him Superman, and it was a huge hit, big deal. And then they made Superman 2, which is my personal favorite. I love Superman 2. And then the franchise goes really downhill really badly, and I would advise, yep. yeah, no one ever sees Superman 4. Have you seen Superman 4, The Quest for Peace? I've heard of it. <laughs> it's it's so terrible. It's way worse than Spider-Man 3. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so, yeah, so anyway, Superman phased out by the mid-80s, and then we had Batman, which was the second big one. Which a lot of people liked. I don't really love any of the Batman movies personally. I don't think they're especially interesting. But they were a big hit. But that was it. Those were really the only two big superhero franchises until Spider-Man. And it always baffled me. Because how could you not pull off a Wonder Woman movie or a Green Lantern movie at any point? But they just never did because I guess there was no market for them or something. But then Spider-Man was like kind of the revival. The first time we're trying to do this again. Yeah, it was really Spider-Man and X-Men that really got the ball rolling. Before then, like, most of what you saw of superheroes were just, like, TV stuff, like the Incredible Hulk TV show or mm -hmm. the Wonder Woman TV show. Yeah, exactly, yeah. The Wonder Woman, anybody who's my age, I'm 47, grew up in the 70s, you watched the Incredible Hulk TV show, that was a great show, I loved that. You watched Wonder Woman, you were kind of embarrassed if you were a little boy, you watched Wonder Woman, <laughs> but you could justify it because she was so hot that you loved it, and she was like the first woman you were ever in love with. But that was a huge show too. But those shows even flamed out after a couple seasons, they didn't last very long. Television making back then was like very fast-paced, like... They were definitely trying to get on to, like, the next th project, the next thing. Like, once a, once a TV show had run its course, they just, like, shoved it out of the way and, and got something completely different in there, trying to get, trying to keep things fresh. Yeah. Which is kind of an inverse of, like, how television and movies are treated nowadays. Yeah, it's very rare to have a show that's on for, like, ten seasons back then. <laughs> and, then and then you get, like, procedurals that last, like, 20 seasons nowadays. So anyway, we get up to 2002, and we're trying to get Spider-Man, who is probably kind of a lesser-tier superhero. The big ones were the Supermans, the Batmans, you know, Wonder Woman, Flash. These were the big ones. Spider-Man's kind of like a second-tier superhero. And there's all sorts of history behind this movie. And I know you've researched this, all the different variants and scripts they went through. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intense rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> Why don't you give us some, some summaries, some Cliff's notes here? Okay, so originally, uh, I think the people who owned the rights to uh, Spider-Man were uh, Canon Films, and uh, people who like watch like 70s, 80s, 90s movies. That's an infamous name. <laughs> Is that Roger Corman? I think the the, the two producers that are like tied with that with that studio are like Golan and Globus. Oh, okay, yeah, Golan and Globus do real cheap early sex comedies from the 80s. Right, and, and they had the rights to Spider-Man for God knows how long. Well, well, okay, I think I read Roger Corman had it even before that. You may not know even know Roger Corman. He's this old-timey 50s, 60s monster movie director who was notorious for being the cheapest producer ever, that he was so infamous for coming in under budget that people loved. Studios loved him because he was so cost-effective. So I can just imagine a cheap Roger Corman Spider-Man and then it passed – so he lost the rights. It went to Golan Globus. And then where to go from there? 
Oh, they, they tried to, like, they tried to, to get a bunch of people attached to the project. The important part is that they got James Cameron. <laughs> yes. James Cameron, for people who don't know, uh, my my other favorite director aside from Sam Raimi, but James Cameron from Alien, or from Aliens, Terminator, True Lies, Titanic, Avatar, at one time was attached to Spider-Man, which, man, that would have been a spectacle to see his version of this movie. Oh, like, if you actually, like, look up the ideas that came up, you will be shocked. <laughs> now, what are some of them? I, I know a couple. I know he wanted Leo DiCaprio to be Peter Parker, right? Yeah, that's, a, that's one of them. I think that was, like, when he was in, in talks with this dude, that was his first choice. Um, I know that he had, like, like a bunch of, like, different, like, lesser villains attached to it. I know that there was, like, a lot of, like... Yeah, I, I know it wasn't... It wasn't Green Goblin or Dr. Octopus. They had a couple other villains in there. At one point, I know Arnold Schwarzenegger was picked to play Dr. Octopus, which <laughs> I have to say, that would have been awesome. I would have loved to see that. I don't remember Dr. Octopus, but I know at some point you had at least, uh, I think I think at some point during the, uh, the canon era, for lack of a better term, I know that Bob Hoskins was attached to it as Dr. Octopus. <laughs> wow. From Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Wow, that would have been fun. And also, like, oh, right, right here, like, a, a direct quote from Wikipedia, Cameron's treatment also featured heavy profanity and a sex scene between Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson atop the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> uh, okay, I look into my notes here, now I see another one, that he wanted Edward Furlong to play Peter Parker. Now, Edward Furlong, the little boy in uh, Terminator 2, that's uh, John Connor. <laughs> His career would have been quite an arc if he had been Spider-Man. But yeah, there's all sorts of goofiness going around this script. There was people suing each other over the rights to Spider-Man. This went on for like 15 years, maybe longer. It was insane. And like I said, superhero movies were not that big a deal. Superman was a big deal, then it flamed out. Batman had a couple good movies, then it flamed out. These were not seen as huge, viable, long-term concepts. So, like, the idea that we'd, we'd have a third one, Spider-Man, was kind of like, it wasn't a, wasn't a sure thing. That's the one thing I want to get across to people. Right, like, yeah, this was, like, very untested. Like, Hollywood studios have, like, a pattern of, like, following trends. Like, they never get creative. They want something that makes them money. They only greenlight stuff that they're confident will make them money. Yeah, and this was not, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people did not believe in this movie. Like, they eventually had a script. They eventually had a director, and we'll get to him in a second. They eventually had a star. We'll get to him in a second. They had a hard time finding the villains. Just, again, this movie was not a sure thing. It was going to be a spectacle, but it could be a huge flop and a disaster. Right. There, there were a lot of, like, directors that they looked at, too. Uh, I think uh, Roland Emmerich was one of them. Chris Columbus. Ang Lee. That would have been something. Yeah, who else did I see in there? The uh, uh, the guy who did, oh, I don't remember. But, there, yeah, there was, like, eight different directors they looked at. I think M. Night Shyamalan, that was one of them. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, David Fincher as well. <laughs> yeah, Fincher. Yeah, this it was crazy. And uh, at one point they wanted – now, I would have loved this. They wanted Nicolas Cage to play the Green Goblin. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> now, imagine a movie where Nicolas Cage is asked, hey, could you go over the top a little? <laughs> a li I don't think the words a little exists in Nicolas Cage's vocabulary. <laughs> no. But yeah, this movie just was all over the place, and they could not find the director, and they eventually ended up with Sam Raimi. And this is really, I think, is going to be the heart of this podcast, because 
I love Sam Raimi movies so much. I think everyone should love them all. And he was brought in to do this movie, a superhero movie, which was a very odd choice at the time. Right. Uh, I think I, if you like, look up the interviews, like Sam Raimi says that he's like a big fan of the of the comics and a big fan of Spider-Man. So this may have been more of a passion project for him, but then again, directors say anything to look good in the interviews. So. <laughs> Yeah, Sam Raimi, he's a big comic book fan. Anybody who knows his history knows he started with horror movies, started with The Evil Dead, The Evil Dead 2, which are essentially live-action cartoons. And then he moved on to trying to do mainstream movies. He did a couple. There's one he did I love called For Love of the Game. It's a baseball movie. He did A Simple Plan, which I love. He did The Quick and the Dead, which is maybe my favorite movie of the 90s, and I've been pimping that movie out to people for years. Successfully. I actually saw it a few months ago. Did you like it? Oh, yeah, like, I definitely picked up on Sam Raimi's style as I watched the movie. I was like, yep, that's the guy. <laughs> yeah, but then, okay, this is the part that i got to point out to people. He did a superhero movie called Darkman. Have you ever seen Darkman? I haven't, but it's I've, I've heard the name. Yeah, it's not that dissimilar from Spider-Man. It's kind of like a test run for Spider-Man. But the problem was it flopped really badly. So, like, nobody saw it, but if you were to see Darkman, you can kind of see why they picked him to direct Spider-Man, because there's a lot of superhero elements, a lot of similar storylines. But, yeah, Sam Raimi was kind of a, a guy that they just pulled out of their butt to direct Spider-Man, and this was a big risk, because he was not a proven moneymaker at all. Yeah, what, was his, like, what would you say his most, quote-unquote, successful uh, film would have been by that time? His most successful were the Evil Dead movies, and that's what people know him as. He's the horror, but he didn't make a lot of money off those. Those were not notorious money makers. But anybody who knew him at the time knew, oh, that's the guy that does those zombie movies out in the woods where people are getting, you know, disemboweled and their limbs ripped off. Like, he was a horror director. Yeah, and, and we're giving him the most, one of, like, the top five most famous superheroes in the world. Have fun, Sam. Yeah, not only that, man, The Quick and the Dead and Darkman had just flopped massively. So, like, he was not a sure thing at all. So it was so odd at the time, I remember, that Sam Raimi was going to direct Spider-Man. <laughs> Although I have to say, there's a scene in Spider-Man 2. Now, have you seen the Evil Dead movies? Um... I've only seen, like, clips of them, but, like, I get the gist. Yeah. There's a scene in uh, Spider-Man 2 that is so much an Evil Dead scene. It's the scene where Dr. Octopus's arms attack all the doctors and surgeons. Oh, yeah. I, if, I, if I remember, like, it, it was, like, right after the, the octopus arms got fused to Dr. Octopus's back. So, like, they're trying to remove it in surgery with chainsaws. Yeah. That is such an Evil Dead scene. That's like Sam Raimi doing a uh, throwback to his early horror days. I just want to point that out to people that you cannot watch that movie if you know the Evil Dead and not see, oh, yeah, that's him doing Evil Dead again. Anyway, so Raimi was a nobody, and then they pulled Tobey Maguire to be the star of Spider-Man, who this is back in the era when Tobey Maguire, I think, was in every single movie. <laughs> but, but he'd never been an action star, so he was controversial as well, wasn't he? Yeah, like, you you look at, at Tony McGuire, like you don't think that he's like an ass kicking hero. Like he 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 has the Peter Parker bit down. Like he has the dweeby face. He has like pasty skin, like sad puppy dog eyes. But like it's tough to buy him as like a hero. So I guess it's a good thing they kind of put him in that uh full skin tight suit. So it's a lot. It's a bit more believable to to see Spider Man when you're not seeing Tony McGuire's face. Yeah, although that does lead us to the question, is he the first dork superhero ever? 
Mm. It's a trick question. Yeah, I, I discussed it with my wife because we talked about uh, Clark Kent and Superman. Now, Clark Kent is just described as mild-mannered. He's not a dork. Christopher Reeve just dorks him up in the movie a little bit. But he's not really a straight-up dork like Peter Parker getting like picked on at school. Yeah, when you think of uh, Christopher Reeve in that movie, you don't think of Clark Kent. You think of Superman. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tobey Maguire, yeah, another un, another unorthodox choice, kind of controversial, where the, uh, the, you know, the big producers and executives are like, I don't know if this kid can do action movies. So we have a director who's never done a big blockbuster, you know, smash hit before. We have a star who's never been in a big action movie before. Yeah, this movie was right off the bat already kind of unconventional. Hmm. It's only getting more unconventional from here. Okay, yeah. Now now let's talk about our main villain. And I I will talk about this, that uh, one of the things I love about the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies in particular is that they didn't pick huge name actors for their main villains, which is what they would do nowadays. Right, right. They, they want, like, somebody that people have heard of to, like, make give you a reason to uh, see the movie. Yeah, and that is definitely not the case with these Sam Raimi movies. Like, Willem Dafoe, a pretty you know, well-respected dramatic actor, but never anyone I'd seen as, like, a super villain. Right, like, and I know that Willem Dafoe has, like, a lot of defenders nowadays, but, like, 20 years ago, like... What did he really have going for him? Like he had the he was he was Jesus Christ at one point. I mean, he was well respected. People liked him and enjoyed him, but this is not the type of movie he did. Yeah, and uh, Boondock Saints was a few years away too, I think. <laughs> he was in a movie I saw. I hate to admit this to my listeners. I apologize. Madonna did a movie in the '90s called Body of Evidence, Oof. where she's like this man-eater serial killer. And Willem Dafoe is like the guy that she targets. And there's a scene where he's tied to a bed and she's dripping wax on him and torturing him. And I always remember I saw that movie in the theater and I apologize, but he was in it. Oh. Mm. Probably not something he's including on his resume nowadays. Yeah, nor will I. That will not be a staff pick. I apologize. (laughs) But yeah, but I love all these Raimi movies because he picked Willem Dafoe. In the second one, he goes with Alfred Molina, who was – I'd never even heard of that guy. Yeah, I think he's more famous on Broadway than in film. Yeah, I mean, he was well-accomplished, but not a huge movie star, not someone you'd see in superhero movies. The third one, they went with Thomas Hayden Church. So I really appreciated the way Sam Raimi approached these movies, the spirit he gave them, the music he gave them, and the villains he gave them, which were all very three-dimensional, sympathetic in their own way. Yeah, and it's definitely like it's definitely something Sam Raimi does. Like He never makes a one-dimensional character. I don't think it's possible for him to direct a one-dimensional character. Like he gives death to like almost every character, even like the bit parts. <laughs> okay. We're going to come to one character that may rebut that a little bit. Cause there's one character in this movie that my wife hates with a burning passion. Wait, let me guess. Let me guess. Yeah, Harry please, Os- please throw a name out. Is it Harry Osborne? It is not Harry Osborne actually. Ah, oh, because like, I don't know that James Franco is like, I know that James Franco has a reputation now for kind of like being like the same guy, kind of like awkward and, and goofy in a bunch of his roles. But th- this was kind of like before James Franco became the James Franco we know and may or may not love today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, d- I didn't know who he was when the first time I saw this movie. I'd never seen Freaks and Geeks or anything. Mm. So uh, what's the correct answer, Mario? Okay, I cannot watch Spider-Man or Spider-Man 2 or Spider-Man 3 for that for that matter. And my wife, if, if, she, if she hears it on in the background, she'll immediately comment on the character she hates in this movie, who's so underwritten, who has no purpose other than be saved and scream all the time. 
Okay, I see where you're going. Yeah, now. MJ. My wife hates Kristen Dunst as MJ. Mm, I think I she's. I think I. Sh- I think I see what she means. Like, I rewatched this movie a few days ago. Like, it's definitely hard for me to really buy that. That Peter Parker is like head over heels in love with Mary Jane Watson. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure Kristen Dunst is nice, but she doesn't do it for me. Now, I like Kirsten Dunst. I love her in a lot of the movies. I especially love uh, the movie Dick in 1999. But, yeah, she's a little older than a teenager here, and she's playing young. And she does this thing with her voice where she sounds all young and vulnerable. And my wife's like, I cannot stand that voice she picks. So, anyway, I just had to point that out. That's the one character that my wife had made. She goes, when you're on staff picks, please mention how much MJ sucks. So I will mention that. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, so... We're not going to get too much into the plot of this movie, only because the Spider-Man you know, mythos is very well known. Like, you know this movie, probably. Even if you haven't seen it, you know the storyline. Right, right. I'm sure, like, every other American in the world can quote the lines from, with great power comes great responsibility from memory. Yeah. So we don't need to get too deep into that. Yeah, this isn't really a glorifying of the Spider-Man myth. I'm just talking about kind of the backstory, kind of the history, the things that are cool about this movie. Now... There's one other thing. There's a big elephant in the room when you talk about this movie. Now, you might be too young to really appreciate this, but are you aware of the 9-11 timeline, the tie-in with this movie? Uh, yeah. I, I, I think nowadays, like, it's, it's pretty easy to know what, to, to know, like, how close this was related to, like, 9-11, because Spider-Man takes place in New York, and the movie came out in, like, May 5th, so, like, about, like, eight or nine months since 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, for all intents and purposes, the first big blockbuster movie to come out after 9-11, which historically is a big deal because 9-11, if you were not there, basically changed everything, changed everything in pop culture, in American culture, everything that Americans did, their leisure activities, it dominated your thoughts, like everyone thought the world was going to change. And this was the first big stupid action blockbuster movie to come out after 9-11, and it has often been called, and I not, this is not hyperbole, I've heard people say this, Spider-Man was literally part of the healing after 9-11. Now, you, that has no resonance. Yeah, that has no resonance with you, does it? Because you're too young. Yeah, like, it's, yeah, like, I was, like, I was in kindergarten when, when 9-11 happened. So I didn't, I don't think I even knew that 9-11 was a thing until, like, a year or two afterwards. <laughs> I was an oblivious kid. I, I guess I still am oblivious, but, like, yeah, that, that's how... That's how far over my head a lot of pop culture stuff is. Like, like my parents like did a good job of, like shielding me from like the horrors of the world, but like with, with all respect to 9/11, I I did not know it was a thing until like the year afterwards. <laughs> it's really amusing to me talking to people so much younger than myself about 9/11 because it's it's hard for me to relate to that mindset. Although my daughter was born in. 2000 so she's not much younger than you right and she's the same way like she it means nothing to her they have all these recollections on 9-11 never forget the 20-year anniversary she's like it was just one day who cares like that's what that's what she thinks honestly yeah like but, but like I, I i i got the i got the after effects of it like i know that like my elementary school had like a 9-11 memorial near the near the playground yeah <laughs> But this movie was a big part of that, and that's one of the things I want to talk about. One of the unexpected reasons why this movie was a big hit. Now, 
this movie would have been a big hit anyway because Sam Raimi kicks ass in it. He kills it. The special effects are amazing. It's just such a fun, earnest, good-hearted, warm movie. But, again, you cannot discount the fact that this came out, you know, seven months after 9-11 and nobody had really smiled or laughed or done anything fun in seven months. So this big, huge movie comes out, which, again, is set in New York has New Yorkers saying, hey, you pick on Spider-Man, you pick on one of us. Like, you cannot separate those two things. That's why this movie was not only a hit, it eventually became, I think I read, the sixth highest grossing movie of all time, including, it held the record, I don't know if it still holds this record, for the most movie made in one day. It actually set the Guinness Book of World Records for money in one day. It was really huge. Mm. I don't know if it had that. I don't know if it still has that record, but I can definitely buy that it had it at some point. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. And I remember just the feeling of this movie. Like, wow, we get to have movies again? It was It was just <laughs> – it's hard to it's hard to really relate that to someone your age. Like, you wouldn't really have that mindset to be able to, to get into that. But that was, that was the feeling. This was the big movie that kind of brought everyone back. And I know there's a couple scenes that had to be cut from the movie because of 9-11, right? Oh, oh yeah. Like – there was once, like, a teaser trailer for Spider-Man that had, like, a bunch of, like, bad guys like, robbing a bank. They got away on a helicopter, but then the helicopter stops in midair. And then it turns – and then they look out the window, and it turns out they're stuck in a spider web that spun across the Twin Towers. <laughs> yeah. That was a te- – that was the original teaser trailer for the the movie, and obviously it did not see the light of day for too long. Although you you can still find it on YouTube. I actually watched that trailer this morning. It's still there. Oh, oh yeah, like, you can still find it, but, like, it wasn't showing in front of any movies since then. Yeah, okay, and to, to exp- explain this a little more, yeah, the original poster for Spider-Man was a shot of the close-up of his face and the reflection of the Twin Towers are in his eye. And all this movie was shot up until June of 2001, so right before 9-11. So, again, you really cannot extricate this movie from 9-11 they're so tied together there were scenes in the movie that had to be changed because they referenced 9-11 it's just a big new york movie they added scenes later some of the shots in this movie where the new yorkers help spider-man and there's all this community pride that was added again you, you cannot separate these two things right right and it, it, i think i think it might have been just me watching a kid like but like at that time, like late 90s, early 2000s, there were a ton of movies taking place in New York, weren't there? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there still are. But, yeah, people love their New York movies. This is one of the biggest New York movies. Eat your heart out, Harry Met Sally. <laughs> yeah, When Harry Met Sally, that's another big one. All the Woody Allen movies. But, yeah, this – one thing I want to get across to younger viewers, and I've seen a lot of people review this movie – and they say how cheesy it is, how some of the stuff is really cheesy, how the special effects maybe don't hold up, the CGI looks fake. And one thing that comes up a lot is people will say, it's so corny how it's so pro-New York. Like, this movie really wears New York on its sleeve, and the, the people are like, yeah, we're New York, screw you, Green Goblin. Yeah, people are upset nowadays, they watch it now, they don't like that. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts, and this movie still made me believe that New York was like a fantasy land where anything could happen. <laughs> Yeah, but what I want to get across is that, uh, yeah, those scenes are corny to you now. They were not in 2002 in the summer. You'd see that scene in a movie. Yeah, we're New York. Screw you, Green Goblin. Like, the audience would have cheered. That is a huge moment in this movie in time. That's all I want to point out. Mm. The only way way the audience could have cheered louder is if Osama Bin Laden was on the glider instead. (laughs) Yes, that that was a cut scene. They originally had him in an Osama Bin Laden mask. They had to cut that out. Mm. (laughs) 
So anyway, is there anything else we need to go over in the history of Spider-Man or kind of the uh, backstory before we kind of walk through the movie fairly quickly? Um, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's about all the, the big highlights. Yeah, let's see. We covered the villain. They, uh, they originally wanted bigger names. They wanted Nicolas Cage as the Green Goblin. They wanted Jim Carrey. They had all these special effects for the Green Goblin, but Willem Dafoe eventually got the role. He insisted on wearing this mask, even though the mask is expressionless. Now, that's kind of a controversy, isn't it? Yeah, because, like, originally they had, like, prosthetics to make the Green Goblin mask move, but the but he wound up having a helmet instead. And even then, like, Willem Dafoe insisted that he be in costume wearing that helmet in a lot of his scenes. Like, and you can still see a bit of his face through the, the helmet, like... I know that the eyes in the helmet can lift up a little bit, and you can see Willem Dafoe's eyes. There's like a little mesh in the in the mouth of the mask, and you can see Willem Dafoe's lips move. Mm-hmm. But like that's really it when Willem Dafoe's in the costume. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of criticism about that—that that people don't like that the mask is expressionless; it doesn't move. Right, but like, but at the same time, like it definitely hits more. Like it feels a bit more horrifying i guess i'm speaking as a six-year-old who saw this the greek goblin fucked me up yeah i was gonna say i've read that as well that a lot of kids when they saw this movie were terrified by the green goblin he scared them oh yeah he he does jump scares like he comes in with like a big explosion loud booming that in the the, the movie theater that that screws up a kid (laughs) and i know you pointed out you can kind of see willem dafoe's face through the mouth of the mask and you said that's not as scary I'd argue it probably is as scary because Willem Dafoe is a creepy looking dude. Oh yeah, like you, I, I think with, with like the benefit of age and maturity, like Willem Dafoe's like scariest stuff is when he's like outside of the costume when he's doing the split personality scenes. <laughs> I I really love him in this movie, and I have to give a shout out to one of my all time favorite memes, the uh, the the Willem Dafoe meme from Spider Man. You know which one I'm talking about, right? You've been posting on your Facebook for like two weeks. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Just <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my all-time favorite internet memes. I will never not laugh, no matter what the caption is. I just love that one. Yeah, this 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 movie has like five or ten different memes that like impaled itself into pop culture. What are the other ones? The other one. What are the other ones? Uh, bone saw is ready. That's another big one. There's the one, uh, it might be from this or Spider-Man 2, where Mary Jane's like, tell me the truth, Peter, and he tells her, and then she cries. <laughs> I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the, the, the sequels. Okay. Um, what else, what else is big? What else is big? Uh, oh, oh, the, this doesn't really count as like a singular meme, but more like a meme character. Uh, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah, let's talk about him for a second. Oh, yeah, he like. He stole the, the show. Like I think he's only in the movie for like five minutes out of it, but he makes such an impact. <laughs> now, I read some – okay, so for people who don't remember, J. Jomas, Jonah Jameson is the uh, owner of the newspaper. I forget, the Daily Bugle. Is that the name of it? Yeah. And he's the one that hates Spider-Man, but Spider-Man gives him press and sells papers. So he's always forever trying to get pictures of Spider-Man and put them on the front <laughs> page. And he's very fast-talking, very cynical – a big deal in the in the few comic books I've ever read, and yeah, he steals every single scene in this movie. Yeah, like they they give him so much more to do in the in the next movies. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. <laughs> now J.K. Simmons wasn't especially that well known going into this movie, if I recall. He was like forever to this day. I think people still associate him with this role. Yeah, this is definitely like the most famous 
thing he's ever done. Like, I think the only thing that comes close, like, if he was in, like, a movie where he was, like, a, like, like an insane, like, music music conductor in, like, a school, like, he, I think I won a bunch of Oscars, but, like, people don't think of that when they think of J.K. Simmons. They think of this. They think of him with the cigar and the, and the, and the haircut and the mustache. Yeah, that music movie, I forget the name of it already, and my wife will kill me because she loves it. It's, he's, a, he's a music instructor teaching a drum student. Hey, this is Mario just jumping in to say the name of the movie is Whiplash. That's the movie I was thinking of. But yeah, people remember this movie, and then, although I read that uh, Stan Lee, now, you know the history of Stan Lee a little bit, right? Oh, yeah, he's like one of the most famous people in the comic book industry in general. He created so many classic characters and or have had at least a small part in creating the characters. And like the management side, he like changed the way that uh, superhero comic books were made. Yeah. Now, for years, if people know Stan Lee, you might laugh at this. One of his dreams was when they, if they ever made a Spider-Man movie, he wanted to play J. Jonah Jameson. I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah. He lobbied for that role so hard. Every single time they scripted it, every single time they rewrote it over the between 1980, whatever, and 1999, he wanted to be J. Jonah Jameson. And he even screen tested for this movie. He really wanted it. But at the last moment, he pulled out and said, you know what? I'm not right for it. So that he he is who we have to thank for uh, J.K. Simmons. Mm, there there is a there is a happy story to that if you want to call it. I know there was like a animated Spider-Man movie a couple of years back. Uh, at the end of like the the end credit sequence, Spider-Man goes back in time to like the '60s, like the era of like the animated Spider-Man cartoon. You have and you get the meme of the two Spider-Men pointing at each other, <laughs> and then you get a, a a and then the last gag of the movie is a J. Jonah Jameson aghast that there's two Spider-Man and he's voiced by Stan Lee in that. So at least Stan Lee got that one little little gag as J. Jonah Jameson before he passed away. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that was like his number one wish in his entire career. He just wanted to be J. Jonah Jameson. And he got to be J. Jonah Jameson for like five seconds, but boy, I'm one of five seconds. You know what? Yeah, dreams aren't all the same size for everybody. Mm. Okay, so let's get into the movie here. Again, I'm assuming everyone knows the Spider-Man myth. We're not going to go too much into it. We're just going to go through some of the things that stand out in this movie. Although, I just wanted to say as I watched this movie, it, it's hilarious to me that people were thought it was a controversial choice that Sam Raimi would direct or Tobey Maguire would star because I cannot for the life of me picture anybody else making this movie between those two. Mm, it, yeah, like, it's definitely... Yeah, they definitely uh, planted themselves into that position. Like, for, for like, years, Sam Raimi was the Spider-Man guy. Like, you didn't know... People didn't talk about Sam Raimi about anything else other than Spider-Man. And, and Tobey Maguire, that same thing happened to him. Like, he was Peter Parker for a good chunk of time. Yeah. Again, a very universally respected movie. Maybe not so much respected now, because I know most people think that there are better Spider-Man movies since. I personally have never seen any of them, so I don't. I can't. I can't answer that. Have you? I've seen the Spider-Man movies that happened since. Uh, people will still argue that these movies are better, though. Okay, good. Stick out. Hold out for the good fight, people. I appreciate the originals. Mm, the OGs. Yeah. Although, I do know it's pretty much a unanimous consensus that Spider-Man 2 is better than 1, correct? Yeah, this, Yeah, that Spider-Man 2 like definitely is the improvement. It was more successful at the box office. Uh, I think 
that's when they really started doing like really fun things with Peter's character. Okay. But this this one still has value. This one still has a lot of value. Well, yeah, and that's always my argument with sequels. Number two doesn't exist if number one doesn't knock it out of the park to begin with. Right. Yeah, so you got to appreciate the uh, ground-building world of the first one. And that's that's my point here, that Sam Raimi's coming into this completely unknown, untested, although <laughs> it's funny, as someone pointed out the other day, yeah, Spider-Man 1 was such a live-action cartoon. I don't know why people didn't think Sam Raimi would have been good for that, because that's all he does is make live-action cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely, he definitely approaches, like, filmmaking in a way that's a way more creative, way more out there, like, he does stuff you would never expect. Yeah, and it's it's very childlike. He has a very childlike innocence about his movies. Even even in Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, where people are being ripped apart by zombies, Sam Raimi will have a tribute to the Three Stooges in there because those are his heroes. <laughs> so, like, that's the kind of stuff I just love about Sam Raimi. Like, he's just a little kid who never grew up, and he gets to do this stuff like Spider-Man. Anyway, we'll talk about more of him as the movie goes along. Okay, so let's go into Spider-Man here, and I have to talk about the opening sequence. Oh God, yes. The credit sequence. Okay, share your thoughts on that first. It's 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 hard to describe when you if you've never seen or heard it before. I think the music really sells it. Uh, I know that Danny Elfman did the score. Definitely one of his like better uh, performances. The the music in Spider-Man is so good, and that definitely makes the opening credit sequence good. Like it lasts for like three minutes. You get pictures of like webs and. The sky, uh, skyscrapers, uh, Spider-Man and Green Goblin masks. And, and through it all, you get the opening theme playing through it. I don't think I've ever skipped it in my life. It's great. Yeah, it moves so fast. It's just an animated montage of all these Spider-Man moments and themes and motifs. And it's got this really cool pounding soundtrack through it. And it just really sets you up for this movie. It really gets your blood boiling. But there's something I have to say about it. And this is... What I love so much about Sam Raimi. Now, my personal favorite Sam Raimi movie is not uh, Spider-Man. It is not Evil Dead 1 or 2. My favorite Sam Raimi movie is the horror movie he did a couple years after this one. Now, do you know which one I'm talking about? The name's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember it. Drag Me to Hell. Um, uh, I don't think I've seen that one, but I know that a lot of people love it. <laughs> Yeah, a couple years after Spider-Man, Sam Raimi's like, you know, I've been doing these mainstream movies for so long, I'm kind of burned out. I want to go back to my roots and start doing horror movies again. So he pulled out this uh, gypsy movie called Drag Me to Hell, which I think is one of the greatest horror movies ever made. And the reason I bring that up is because the opening sequence to Drag Me to Hell is just like the opening sequence to Spider-Man. Animated montage, things flying all over the place, this really pounding soundtrack. And it's very similar. The music is very similar to Spider-Man. And I can't help but laugh when I listen to the Spider-Man opening and I listen to the Drag Me to Hell opening. And I'm like, these are almost the exact same opening. Just one is an action movie and one's a horror movie. And all it takes is like a little tweak in the key to the music to make the difference. <laughs> I, I wonder if someone has ever like edited the credit sequences differently to like replace the scores. <laughs> But yeah, that's to me that is the the genius and the magic of Sam Raimi. He right, he's right there on that line between action and horror and comedy, and he's right there on all three at all times. You never know where a movie's gonna go, and he obviously veers more into the comedy and the action in this. But it's not that far a pivot to go into Drag Me to Hell, which again I recommend to anybody who has ever liked Sam Raimi before. That movie is fantastic. 
Mm. I'll definitely keep an eye on it. Oh yeah. In the future. Enjoy. That one's an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the whole movie is about Peter Parker, although it has been framed about the story of him and MJ, his girl, the girl next door. Right. She's the. She's the. We see her before we see Peter Parker. And I think I read that was kind of a uh, controversial choice at the time because she is not all that prominent in most Peter Parker origin stories, correct? Right. Like she's actually Peter Parker's like second or third girlfriend, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Wow, Toby gets around. Well, I know that. It had one of Spider-Man's girlfriends, Gwen Stacy, in like the the rebooted Spider-Man movies. Like she's like a, a blonde girl, kind of kind of smart, kind of kind of nice. Uh, but then she gets murdered by the the Green Goblin, or I say quote unquote because like there's some like superhero angst over like whether or not the Green Goblin actually killed her, or whether or not when Spider-Man tried to save her he he accidentally killed her. Oh. So there's a bit of like conflict angst regarding that. But but yeah like. It's an interesting that they went with Mary Jane over uh, Gwen Stacy because like she was the first, but then again like Mary Jane Watson, Mary Jane Parker is like one of the more famous uh, superhero spouses out there. It's like her and Lois Lane. Oh, she's a spouse. They end up they get married. For a while they did. Uh, I know they're like ten. I, I think like twelve years ago maybe they they had like a storyline in the in the comics where they they got separated. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a long story. I don't think you're that interested in it. Yeah, I'm just saying this is why it's odd for me to do a Spider-Man podcast. I've never read a Spider-Man comic book. I've never seen any of the Spider-Man movies after three. So <laughs> I'm just taking your word for it. You could say that he like uh, committed to he like uh, converted to Islam at a certain point. I wouldn't have no way to to rebut that. I don't know. I, I could tell you like two or three different things about Spider-Man. You'd never believe me. <laughs> okay. So anyway, the gist of it is MJ is not the traditional Spider-Man girlfriend. They kind of made an executive choice in this movie to have her live next door. She's the girlfriend. So yeah, this whole movie is framed as basically a story of a boy and the girl next door. It's Peter just trying to impress this hot redhead next door named MJ Watson. Yeah, and like, and I like got at the time when the story begins, like, she doesn't really know that much about him. Like, I'm, he barely talks to her. Like, when they when they go to the museum later on, like, he he kind of just like asks, "Hey, do you want to be in the the photos for the school newspaper?" And she says yes. But like after he takes a few pictures, he walks off with her friends. And Peter's just kind of like, "Oh, thanks." <laughs> but that's really like the the gist of their relationship up to that point. Yeah, she doesn't know he exists. He pines for her. Right. Okay, let's meet all our other major characters. Again, this is the classic Spider-Man myth, which if you've seen all 49 Spider-Man movies, you've seen this play out every single time, where eventually Uncle Ben will be murdered more often than Kenny in South Park. <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay, let's, let's talk about our major characters here. You have Peter Parker, this big dork in high school, Mary Jane, who lives next door, Peter's best friend, Harry Osborn, played by James Franco, and then... You'd argue the bigger character of them is his father, Norman Osborn, who owns a chemical company called Oscor, and this is Willem Dafoe. Right, he's the he's the big business guy in charge of everything. He's he's trying to make sure that they get the big acquisitions from the from the military, and as he tells us, he's something of a scientist himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll recreate that because I know people enjoy the meme, but it's the it's the famous scene where. Peter Parker is like the number one scientist in his high school. Norman Osborn is one of the greatest science minds of his time. And they meet for the first time. And he's like, Peter, I hear that uh, you like science. And Peter's like, yes, sir. I'm number one in my class. 
And Norman's like, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself. So just, <laughs> it, it definitely like sets up like a, like a theme. Like one, I think one of like the running scenes of Spider-Man is like the relationship between Peter and, and Norman. How like Norman kind of like treats Peter like a surrogate father, even though he already has a son. <laughs> Yeah, okay, let's talk about that, because I read in the setup for this movie, they originally wanted Dr. Octopus, because he's the big Spider-Man villain, but I think it was Sam Raimi who said he thought the dynamic between Peter and Norman Osborn would be more interesting, because it's a father-son. So he really lobbied hard to put the Green Goblin in instead of Dr. Octopus. Right, and uh, I think the only way that kind of dynamic would work is if you have like a really great actor to like really push it forward, and they definitely got a really great actor. Now, wouldn't you have loved to see Nicolas Cage here, though? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Come on, someday at some point in history, someone has to cast Nicolas Cage as the Green Goblin. I just have to see it. Mm. <laughs> now, I know people your age don't appreciate Nicolas Cage. I know this historically. They all think he's super over the top. He's over the top in a way that's kind of fun, but he, but people like him in the sort of way that people think, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger is fun. Like he's corny in a, in a way that's like past. It's, it's hard to describe like Nicolas Cage and people like Nicolas Cage. <laughs> now, I will say there's a huge generational gap because people my age tend to like him because he's insane. That's why we like him. Just throw Nicolas Cage out there and you never know what's going to happen. Right. But he's, he's definitely more of a clown nowadays. And, and there's like flat out insane balls to the walls. Does that does about damn well anything he pleases in the movie? I think he eventually steered into his reputation and just went with it. I think that's what happened. He became his character. Yeah, he kind of like, he has to be aware that that people just like see him as like an oddity now. Oh yeah, I'm sure he loves it. That's the thing with him. Hey, he gets paid, so why not? All right, so here's the Spider-Man origin story that he and his class go to a uh, science exhibit. Apparently, there's a huge exhibit on radioactive spiders as you do often in science laboratories. And uh, he's like, what is this? There's like, they're like reconstructing the DNA of spiders and trying to combine them all into one super spider. Yeah, they, they have like exhibits of like different spiders and they show off their uh, abilities. You have spiders with their strong web. You have spiders who can jump far. They have spiders that have like a quote unquote spider sense that allows them to like sense things from like out of nowhere. It's, it's definitely setting up the superpowers that we'll eventually get. Yeah, is that a real thing? Precognition? I, I, I have not admittedly studied spiders as much as Norman Osborn and or Peter Parker. Is it such a thing that spiders can have precognition? <laughs> as far as I'm aware, no. <laughs> but uh, it, they definitely sell it in a way that makes you think, oh, that's interesting. I've played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't remember seeing that as a power of the giant spider. But, I mean, maybe it's a phase spider. I don't know. Mm, maybe added it in fourth edition. I don't know. <laughs> So there's all these spiders that are being uh, combined to be this one radioactive, massive spider. And as luck would have it, one of the spiders on the class field trip comes down and bites Peter Parker on his hand as he's taking a picture. He's like, ow. And like, from here on out, his world will be changed. Right. It's, it's kind of like it's kind of like the thing with like Peter Parker. He starts out as ordinary, but then through a twist of fate, he gets powers. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a core building block of the character. <laughs> it is. 
We, he must be bitten by a spider, get powers. We got to kill that MF Uncle Ben. This is how you have to start every <laughs> every Peter Parker story has to start. So as Peter goes home and he's sick with his spider bite and he's like his DNA is changing. We have the all the uh, alternate story going on here, the fall of Oz of Oscor Laboratories. Yeah. So if I remember right, the the story is that like the government wants them to have a super serum ready so they can make a soldiers like performance dancing drugs like they're they're still testing it but one of the, the scientists says hey there's a problem uh, some of the the tests we've done on lab rats made them go insane and that makes the general decide like we we want a, a good serum or else we're going to give our uh, government contract to this other company and that kind of drives norman osborne to uh make sure that they have the data they need to sell the serum by testing it on himself. Yes. This is the future of Oscor, his company. He has put together with blood, sweat, tears, and gumption that they need this contract with the government. The government says, no, it's not ready. It's this human performance chemical. And Norman's like, well, I'll test it out, even though he's been told. I wrote this down because I loved it. The side effects have been shown to be violence, aggression, and insanity. <laughs> so, more foreshadowing yeah more foreshadowing so he injects himself with a chemical or he inhales it i kind of forget and norman osborne basically goes insane but gets incredibly strong and smart and quick but he this is all all in a, all, all in an effort to help his own company he's not trying to be evil and that's kind of like dr octopus in the second one they're not trying to be evil evil things just happen to them right you can you can argue that they they kind of get what's coming to them because like their own hubris mm-hmm they kind of bring it on themselves. Like, if they just weren't so ambitious, they wouldn't have had these things happen to them. Yeah. Although he does say, he says, risks are a part of laboratory science. So he injects himself with this performance-building chemical, and uh, it, it drives him insane. It makes him super strong. He basically kills his entire lab at the start, right? I, I think there's only, like, one other scientist there with him. But, like, he like, his, like he, his heart stops. He flatlines. The other scientist goes into, like, the the area to uh, revive him he's trying to like give him chest compressions then suddenly his pulse comes back and then and then norman osborne grabs him by the throat chucks him across the room into like a shelf and then he dies <laughs> and this is where willem dafoe gets to contort his face into the evil willem dafoe face the face that probably scared you guys yeah as a kid yeah that, that's that, that's definitely where it began that's when i realized like i was not prepared for this yeah this guy's a scary-looking MF to begin with, and now he contorts his face and does scary Willem Dafoe. And yeah, that would that would be, that would uh, terrorize a lot of little kids. So here are the two stories. So Norman Osborn, he becomes super strong, super evil, super insane. And for some reason, I never really got this. They're working on this jet glider at Oscorp. Yeah, I think it's like supposed to be some kind of like military vehicle for one person. <laughs> I, I I guess. Uh, I, it's not really much protection to the guy on top of it. Maybe that's why they were in trouble. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so there'll be this subplot of Norman Osborn going crazy, grabs his glider, goes and basically the general and the the other company are going to get the contract. Norman Osborn will show up and, and uh, sabotage their demonstration. I think he blows up Quest. That's the, the competitor, right? Yeah, he, like, he flies on the glider, like shoots a missile at like the bunkers or testing the other stuff in. <laughs> yeah, so... The key is do not piss off Norman Osborn because he's mean and evil and strong and ugly. Got to say ugly. And he's on a jet glider and he will shoot you and he's a science genius. So he is a bad one to cross. Right. And 
And and meanwhile, you have Peter Parker, who is not. Changing. He's changing. Let's just say that. Yes. Yes. I, I think immediately after the scene where Norman Osborn kills a scientist, we get Peter Parker waking up in his room and he's and he's in his glasses. He's finding that when he wears them, they're blurry. But when he takes them off, he sees perfectly fine. And he looks himself in the mirror and he's jacked. Yeah. And I read somewhere that uh, Tobey Maguire literally did work out with a trainer for like six months to bulk himself up. Oh, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of work that goes into like preparing to be a superhero in, in Hollywood. Like they, they have you do like training. Uh, I think he had like a specific trainer to help him with, like climbing when he does the climbing scenes. <laughs> His, he has to look like a spider. That was the that was the direction. Make sure you learn to look like a spider. So he had to take spider looking classes. <laughs> like he had to like like watch like footage of spiders to uh, see how they walk, so he can incorporate that into his performance. <laughs> he had to learn how to shoot silk out of his butt. It was intense. <laughs> Actually, the, the 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 thing in is like in the comics, Peter Parker doesn't have like spider web coming out of his his skin. Like originally, it was supposed to be like a gadget that he like makes synthetic web out of. But like the actual like being able to biologically produce your own spiderweb. I think that's like an artifact from the uh, James Cameron treatment. Yeah, okay, uh, let's talk about that for a second, because I, I didn't know that. So, yeah, in the comic book, when Spider-Man has to shoot webs out of his arms, he has a little gadget he has hooked up. Yeah, it's like around his wrist. He can do all sorts of stuff with it. Okay, and in the movies, when James Cameron wrote the script, he added a thing, no, he should just be able to shoot silk out of his arms. And then right. Sam Raimi kept that in the movie because Sam Raimi said, I don't think Peter would be smart enough to build these gadgets that could shoot nuclear or military grade silk. Right. But, uh, but like the whole, like, it's weird because like, the whole point of here is like, he is smart. Like in the comics, he does a lot of like science stuff. He builds gadgets himself, but like, you don't really see uh, Peter in this movie doing that. It's really just like highlighting the spider powers versus like his own, like, like, own like science intelligence okay and i read that was controversial at the time a lot of people didn't like that they changed the comics but Raimi, his argument was he thought it would take the audience out of the movie too much because it was too much suspension of disbelief that toby could build these huge silk shooting things in like a day and yet it's not too much of a leap to imagine that he can just like biologically have this after being bit by a spider and get it the next day now okay we're gonna have a little suspension of disbelief with spider-man let's just leave it at that <laughs> it's Sam Raimi. Suspension of Disbelief is the name of the game in his movies. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so Peter all of a sudden has these powers, like his vision is better, he's all jacked, he's like, that's weird, and he goes to school, and I think the first instance of him realizing he has superpowers, he's running after the bus. Every day the bus drives off, it won't pick him up, the kids won't let him sit on the bus, it's the old Forrest Gump, seat's taken, they won't let him sit, <laughs> so he has to run after the school bus, but when he grabs the side of the bus... Like, the bus sticks to his hand. He gets all this webbing on all this banner, and he's like, what the hell is this coming out of my hand? Right. Right, like, you have a bunch of scenes of that, like, where Peter's, like, doing all these weird things that he has no idea how to control. Yeah. I think, like, when we next go into the... When he goes to school, like, his, like, fork is sticking to his hand. Yeah, this is the first really fun scene with the Spider-Man powers, which, again, were a cool special effect at the time for this movie. That's why you'd go to see it. With him at school trying to figure out why the fork is being stuck to his hand via, via webbing, why he can all of a sudden hear things before they happen, why uh, – is this where he, he catches Mary Jane when she falls? Is this it? I forget. Oh, yeah. that I think that's like a practical effect. 
Yeah, she just she's about to slip and he can hear it. It's like shot in in fast motion, I think. Right, but like they they, they don't really do much to like to like make it look like I think all it is like they sped up the footage and they put like sticky stuff like on like the the food so that it would stick to the the tray when he catches it. But like, everything else, that's all Toby Maguire. Like he's like using his own reflexes to catch it. Okay, but the main gist is just to- just here is Toby or Peter has powers at school. He doesn't realize it, and he. He accidentally, using his webbing, flings a tray of food into a bully, starts a fight. And this is a fight with his bully, Flash, who in normal life would kick the ever-loving shit out of Peter. But because Peter is a superhero now, wipes the floor with him. And, like, everyone's amazed. Like, wow, Peter just beat up this bully. Yeah, he, like, he, like twists his wrist and then gives him one punch and sends him halfway across the hallway. Yeah. So this is the start of a really long montage in the movie of Peter kind of learning what kind of powers he has. Right, right. I think eventually he, like, gets to a point where, like, he's coming home from school and, like, he kind of, like, realizes, like, he has these little hooks on his, like, fingertips that – and then he's and he starts – and he sees a spider web, like, hanging on, on in an alley. He's like, hmm, I wonder. And then he starts trying to climb up the wall itself. Like, and that's, like, a, another, like, iconic part of the, of the movie. That's, like, the, the scene of, like, Spider-Man, like – crawling on on the wall the camera panning so you can actually like see like a different angle and i was gonna say that's probably the kind of stuff people remember when they think of this movie the joyous discovery of peter when he learns he has powers and trying to learn what they are oh oh yeah like he's he's pumped up when he when he figures it out because like after clowns the wall then next he's like doing a scene where he's like jumping from rooftop to rooftop uh, shouting in joy and then he and he gets to like a, a, a rooftop with like has like a street that's a little wider underneath. And he sees another rooftop on the other side. So he sees a crane and he tries to shoot the web at the crane, but he doesn't know how. So he <laughs> fails a bunch of times. Now, okay, this is one thing I wanted to bring up is that when people talk about this first Spider-Man movie, they often say it has a lot of heart, a lot of joy, innocence. This is the scene I think they're probably talking about. It's very childlike. It's a very Sam Raimi scene. Very, woohoo, look what I can do, yay, woohoo. It's very happy and innocent. Does a scene like this exist when they reboot these Spider-Man movies? Is it the same joyous discovery of powers? It's been a while since I've seen them, but um, I know in like the most recent Spider-Man movies they've done, uh, they they kind of start the, the Peter Parker character as, as already having the superpowers. Mm. So we don't really... But he always has, like, some experience with them. But then uh, some of the other superheroes give him, like, costumes that kind of make him a bit better. Okay. So there's not really much of, like, an exploration of, like, the powers. Because, like, those new movies, like, they expect you to know who Spider-Man is when you go into them. Okay. That's the difference. Because, again, I read the reviews, and everyone says, oh, this first one is so innocent and joyous. And that's I think that's the scene they're talking about. And everyone remembers the scene of Peter just learning his powers. And it's kind of shot in not quite a hundred percent speed. It's a little sped up. And I know people have said, Oh, the CGI effects in that first Spider-Man don't hold up. I'd make the argument. They're not really intended to because the way spider, the Sam Raimi does them. They're meant to look cartoony and over the top. Cause that's what he does. Right. So I've always, I don't disagree with that opinion that the CGI stuff doesn't hold up in this movie. I don't think it was intended to look realistic. Right. Uh, and it probably doesn't help that you're seeing Spider-Man on like, modern screens like like uh, high definition like some of that stuff in high definition it doesn't look as good as it used to like i still have like my old 
full screen uh, DVD of Spider Man. That's how I rewatch it. Mm-hmm. The, the, when you're watching with like that that standard definition uh, fuzziness on it, the, everything isn't as uh, sharp or crisp. It makes it makes all like the the cheaper looking special effects not stand out as much. Okay. Yeah, I just have the DVD. I just have a standard definition TV. I've personally never really even seen anything in HD, so it makes no difference to me. But I, I hear those arguments, and maybe they're right. I just don't see them. Like, I just have watched this movie the same way I've always seen it, and it looks perfectly fine to me. Right, right. If you're, if you're watching it in that, in that, uh, in that, that standard 2002 uh, DVD format, it, it, does look a, does, it doesn't look as jarring compared to like when you're watching like a massive 4K screen. Okay, well, that's a good point. I wouldn't have thought of that. Right. Okay, so here's Peter learning all his powers, and uh, this is where like he realizes he's a big shot now, and he wants to impress MJ because she's you know his, the girl he's pining for, and he cannot get to first base with her because she never notices him. But this is where he learns his first trick to kind of impress MJ, that he learns that she has a boyfriend who has a car, and she's impressed by his car. And so this is where this is how he gets into wrestling, right? Because he's just trying to get money to get the car. Right, right. I think he sees like an ad in newspapers, like you get three thousand dollars if you get three minutes in the ring with bone saw. <laughs> now, is this from the comic book or is this unique for the movie? It's it's a little change. Um, I think they had like a. Well, first off, like Peter Parker wasn't really trying to impress a girl in the original comic. He just wanted the, to get money so he can not, just like get a little further ahead in life. And the wrestler he faced was a guy named Crusher Hogan. Mm. Not the splitting image of, of, of Randy Savage, but it, it does, there is a wrestler. There is a guy that Peter beats and, and gets paid for doing it. Okay. Okay. So, so here's the scene. If you, you probably remember it where Peter reads a one ad says, if you can last three minutes in the ring with bone saw, you get $3,000. And he's like, wow, because a car costs 2500 If he does this, he could get a car and impress MJ. So a lot of Peter's superhero exploits are really he just wants to score with MJ. <laughs> <laughs> but he does read a thing in the one ad. It says, colorful characters a must. And that's the big thing. So this leads him to designing his Spider-Man costume, which is one of my favorite montages of the movie. Right. You get a lot of like... You get like overlays and fades of like different designs that Peter is pondering. He's crossing out the, some of the ideas that he has. <laughs> yeah, there's this is a fun scene if you know Spider-Man because he's drawing little sketches in a sketchbook of what he thinks is Spider. He calls himself the Human Spider. He starts drawing all these sketches and like you see the real Spider-Man costume. At one point he draws Venom the costume. He draws another superhero at one point. Like, there's all sorts of stuff. And I love the fact that he comes up with the perfect modern Spider-Man costume. Looks so perfect and so amazing. Yet when you see him show up at the wrestling ring, it's just the stupidest outfit ever that doesn't look anything like that. Yeah, it makes him wonder, like, why even bother if he couldn't <laughs> pull it off? Well, you know, Joe, he's poor. He doesn't have the money. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah that's, a, that's, a, that's a thing. Like, Peter comes from, like, a humble background. His, his, uh, all he has is like his elderly aunt and uncle who are trying to take care of him. I remember one of the scenes like where, where, where Uncle Ben is like looking through like the want ads in the newspaper and he's saying that everything is, everything is computers now. He's computer repairman, computer support, computer technician. <laughs> yeah. So he's, so he's out of work. There's not much he can do except do chores around the house. Yeah. There's not a lot of money going through the Parker household here. Right. 
Okay, so let's go to arguably the most important scene in any Spider-Man movie ever, the the uh, lessons and the death of Uncle Ben, who, as I said before, dies more often than Kenny in South Park, or you could say the other way, dies more often than Batman's parents. It just depends. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so, that's the thing. Any Spider-Man reboot, this guy's got to die. So Uncle Ben drives Peter to the wrestling ring. He doesn't know Peter's wrestling. Peter lies and said he's going to the library. And outside the wrestling ring, Uncle Ben kind of lays down the law. He's like, you know, Peter, you've been changing a lot. You're uh, acting weird. You're not doing your chores at home. You're doing weird experiments in your room. You got in a fight at school? That's not you, Peter. And he's like, the, 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 basically the, the lesson starts with, just because you can beat somebody up doesn't mean you should. And this, of course, morphs into the lesson. I'll give you the honor. What is the lesson? With great power comes great responsibility. Again, like, it's one of the most famous comic book quotes out there. Yeah, this is the uh, mantra of Spider-Man. Just because you have great power, you have to treat it responsibly at the same time. And so Uncle Ben kind of gives him this lesson. And there's another quote here, too, that I kind of forgot where Ben says, Peter, these are the years when a man changes into the man he's going to become for the rest of his life. Just be careful who you change into. Yeah, that's that's a that's another that's a that's a great line. Like it doesn't get as, as much pizzazz as a uh, with great power, etc. But and with, with the way that Uncle Ben's actor says it, it, it has like a lot of like importance and meaning to it. Yeah, I, I would argue that's the bigger line. That's actually the better line. Yeah, and, and it's another like theme because like Spider-Man, because was both Peter and Norman changed during the. the the course of the movie peter was careful about who he changed into norman wasn't and that kind of leads into how they go from there yeah there's actually some really interesting nice themes in this movie that i kind of forgot it's it's deeper than you would expect okay although i do, I do have to point out one other thing about the scene when uh uncle ben drives peter and parks him do you recognize that car do you know the significance of the car they're driving in i i know it was, i know it's old it's like 80s probably yeah that you wouldn't know this you might be too young that is sam raimi's personal car it's called the classic and it's in every single sam raimi movie he has ever made he will always put the classic in the cars in their movie somewhere oh that's, that's cute so there you go if sam raimi fans there's the appearance of the classic it's uncle ben's car so uncle ben gives peter this great advice about be careful who you turn into great power comes great responsibility and peter of course doesn't listen to it at all he yells at uncle ben yeah, Uncle Ben says, I'm, I know I'm not your father. Then Peter snaps at him, well, stop pretending to be. And he kind of just, like, storms out of the car. Uncle Ben's, like, feeling jet-jacked, and he drives away. Yeah, Uncle Ben's like, I'm so sad, I'm going to take off this bulletproof vest I've been wearing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Uncle Ben's going to die. Peter's going to regret that. But first we have this big, long wrestling sequence, which I'm not, oh. yeah, not going to talk too much about it because it's just an action scene, but this is a fun scene. Uh, it's it's so 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 much fun. You have a you have a bone saw being played by Macho Man Randy Savage, looking massive, and he's he has the the the, the Macho Man voice. Bone saw is ready. Yep, and then we have uh Sam Raimi's friend Bruce Campbell. They're always in the same movies together. He's the announcer. Yep, yep. <laughs> he's he's playing up the the guys fighting Bone Saw. He's doing the dramatic entrances, and he says, the next guy to fight Bonesaw is, and then he stops at the stage, and he turns back and says, hey, what did you say your name was again? And then Peter says, the human spider. And he's like, really? That sucks. <laughs> yeah. 
So this rando announcer is the one who's responsible for the name Spider-Man. He invents Spider-Man on the fly. Bruce Campbell invents Spider-Man. That's important. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's a big line of challengers all lined up to fight this bone saw guy. See if they can last three minutes. Most of them are seriously injured. And then Peter gets up there and he's this little scrawny dude in the worst possible costume ever. It's like sweatpants and a hoodie. And it looked look like a red ski mask. It's terrible. Yeah, the crowd boos him, and they're all throwing stuff at him. And and Peter's plan is just to bounce around and stay away from Bonesaw because he's faster than anybody now with his powers. But the promoter prevents that because they put him in a steel cage. So all of a sudden, Steve, uh, Peter's going to have to fight Bonesaw. It's, 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 a lot, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> like, the crowd is going nuts. They're, they're ready to see Peter Parker get torn to shreds. <laughs> And I, I got to say there's a little cognitive dissonance here because I grew up in the watching pro wrestling in the mid 80s when Randy Savage first started out. And he was a skinny, high flying dude who was very not muscular at all. And I stopped watching wrestling about 1989. So I hadn't seen Randy Savage in 10 years. So then he pops up in Spider-Man like 11 years later. He is roided out as big as anybody I've ever seen him. I'm like, oh my god, that guy looks like he's about to have a heart attack. He is so big. Like, I wouldn't even know that was him other than the voice. I just thought that was funny if you grew up with Randy Savage. This is not how he looked when he first started. Oh, oh yeah, he's like, his pecs are massive, his biceps are massive, <laughs> yeah. his hair is a little scragglier now, his skin's a little wrinklier. He does not look good, but he does look big. And then Peter beats him in a fight. And again, it's a fun scene. Go watch it on YouTube if you haven't seen it in a while. Peter right, right. Peter beats the shit out of him, and everyone's amazed. Really? Peter doesn't do much to me. He just, like, kicks him a few times, and then he's done. That kind of, like, shows you how strong Spider-Man is now. <laughs> yeah, so Spider-Man wins, and he goes down to the promoter's office expecting to get his money, his uh, $3,000. And the promoter stiffs him. He gives him, like, 100 <laughs> He's like, he's like, what gives? He's like, As you said three minutes for $3,000. Like, yeah, but you, you beat Bonesaw in two minutes, so you only get $100. Terrible. <laughs> yeah, okay. So here, well, it's going to get complex here. This is how the origin of Spider-Man starts. So Peter is pissed off the promoter didn't pay him the money because he needed that money to give to Mary Jane to buy her a car. And the promoter's like, hey, I don't see how that's my problem. And like five minutes later, some guy bursts in with a gun and robs the promoter of all the money, and he runs out. And as he's running out... Peter could stop him, but Peter chooses not to because he wants revenge against the promoter. He just lets the robber go, and the robber even says, hey, thanks. Yeah, he just, like, yeah, he, get, he goes into the elevator. The elevator goes down. Peter just, like, lets him walk by, and then the, the, the cop's like, hey, you could let him go. And then the promoter comes in. He's like, what the heck? That guy stole from me. You, you, you know how strong you are. You could have stopped him. And then Peter says, I don't see how that's my problem. Throwing it right back in his face. Exactly. Peter has great power. He is not using great responsibility. And it's going to come back and haunt him because the robber then runs outside, hijacks Uncle Ben's car, and shoots him and kills him on the street. So Peter is indirectly responsible for the death of his uncle. Right. But he, he doesn't really know that at first. All he knows is it's like a, a car jacker killed Uncle Ben. He, he dies right on the street. Peter's like the last person he sees. So then Peter is pissed, and he uh, puts on the Spider-Man costume. He he climbs up the building, and he sees the car driving away, and he starts swinging after him. And, and there's, like, an intense chase scene where he's chasing down Sam Raimi's car. <laughs> yeah. He basically turns vigilante, and Peter Parker hunts down the bank robber, or 
hunts down the carjacker, beats the shit out of him in a warehouse. The guy uh, falls out of a building and dies. And Spider-Man has basically killed him out of revenge, which is not a very Spider-Man-like trait. But right before the guy dies, Peter sees his face and realizes it's the guy he let run by with the money. And so Peter is horrified that he just killed Uncle Ben. I'm responsible for that. And he, he act, the words from Uncle Ben echo in his mind. With great power comes respons great responsibility. Be the man you're going to be. Turn into somebody great. And this is really the impetus that will change his entire life. It's, it's definitely one of the more tragic like superhero. Uh, Peter, normally with like other superheroes, like the tragedy makes them the superhero. But... With Peter, it happens in reverse. First he became the superhero, then the tragedy happened. Mm, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, he, he already had the powers. Now he just has to learn why to use them. Right. And uh, and uh, soon after, like, there's uh, there's scenes of him and, and his aunt crying about Uncle Ben being sad. I know there's, like, a, a scene where, like, Norman comes up to Peter during his uh, high school graduation and says, Hey, I'm sorry about your uncle. If you need anything... I'm I'm there, and I think he arranged for uh, Peter and Harry to have like an apartment in uh, the city. Arranged for them. He offers Peter if he wants a job, he can pull some strings. But Peter says he wants to make it on his own as a photographer. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about that commencement scene. This is an important scene that I think doesn't get mentioned in the movie much. That Peter graduates from high school and he's got this weight on his shoulders over his head that he accidentally killed his Uncle Ben. He left on bad terms with him. He kind of dedicates his whole life to Uncle Ben. And uh, at the commencement, the commencement's a big deal about this is where students graduate and become the men they are going to be. And so, like, he kind of remembers Uncle Ben's lesson. So it's like this commencement marks the point of the movie where one thing ends and another begins. Right. And from here on out... Peter is 100% just Spider-Man. He's going to use his powers to avenge Uncle Ben and do good in the world. Right. So, like, after that graduation scene, we go into, like, a, a montage of Spider-Man doing Spider-Man things. He, uh, he, he saves people from getting mugged. He, uh, he uh, catches uh, thieves and, and has the cops show up and see them, like, tied up in spider webs. And he gets, like, little, like, five-second interviews with people on the streets who says that they've seen Spider-Man. Yeah, these montages are fun. Like, it's Spider-Man doing Spider-Man stuff, and when he leaves, when he after he apprehends a bad guy, he leaves a little note for his uh, the people he saved. It says, courtesy your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Like, he's just trying to do good. But there's some people in New York that don't like him, because, strangely enough, New York is filled with difficult types who don't always agree with things. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, uh, so there's some people who love Spider-Man. Some people think he's a menace. He's just a vigilante trying to hunt down people on the streets. Yeah, I, I want to know if you've caught. I want to know if you caught like one of the, one of the things, like in one of like the little like, mini interview segments. Like one of the people who actually uh, does it is uh, Lucy Lawless. Did you catch that? Yeah, I've known that. That's been a good trivia note since like the '90s. If people don't know Lucy Lawless, she was one of the biggest stars on TV at the time. She played Xena, Warrior Princess, and she's married to one of the producers of this film. I think Rob Tappert. And so as a, as a favor, they worked her in here as a, as a, one of the people talking about Spider-Man, but she's almost unrecognizable. Yeah. She's, she's like, I think, I think that she's in like, like a goth makeup or something. Yeah. The punk rock girl. She's like, Spider-Man has eight, eight hands. That sounds hot. <laughs> yeah. This, this movie is a lot dirtier when you uh, really look into it. <laughs> so anyway, this is the whole montage of Peter using his powers and fighting crime and doing all this stuff in honor of uncle Ben and, uh, and this is where we meet his nemesis. 
And you think his nemesis is the Green Goblin, but no, the Green Goblin has not really entered the picture in a big way yet. This is where we meet J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, yes, the most evil force in all of the world, the press. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say enough about this guy. He was so perfect for this role. I can't imagine anybody else doing this role. What are some good, did you write down some J. Jonah quotes? I kind of forget stuff he says. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing th- this one. Like, with a mask, what does he hiding? What does he have to hide? And they're like, it's always running away. I know that people are at the, the actual uh, newspaper office are saying that we can't get a good photo of him. It's like, well, if we can get Julia, if we can get Julia Roberts in a thong, we can get pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's a, here's a quote I just wrote down. He says, uh, who is Spider-Man? He's a criminal. That's who he is. A vigilante, a public menace. <laughs> Why is he wearing a mask? Get a picture of him. We need this guy. And so Jay Jonah doesn't like this guy because he thinks he's this weird guy, just vigilante trying to stop crime on his own. But then one of his editors points out, Every paper we put with Spider-Man on the cover, it always sells out. And Jonah's like, really? All right, put him on the cover. I need pictures. Yeah, and he, and he, he puts another good line. It's like, he doesn't want to be famous. I'll make him infamous. Yeah. So this is the goal. Get a picture of Spider-Man. He puts an ad in the paper. Anybody who can get me pictures of Spider-Man, I'll give him $1,000. So uh, yada, yada, yada. I think we're just going to go to uh, Peter sees that one ad because he needs some money, and then he applies as a photographer, a staff photographer. It's more like a, a freelance. Like he gives him, he, he gives him a photo, and then and and, and uh, Jameson pays him. So he's not, he's kind of hired, kind of not really. It's it's a it's entry level. He, he kind of he doesn't pay him that much, but it's still it's still a decent amount of money. And the more pictures he brings in, the more money he gets. He even offers to give him like Christmas meat. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, there's it's, it's a throwaway line when Jay Jonah's escorting Peter out the door. Give me some pictures. I'll give you some money. Maybe some meat. Some Christmas meat. <laughs> yeah so uh jay jonah takes ahead the pictures peter gives him because peter of course can only he's the only person who get a good picture of spider-man because he's spider-man he sells it and jay jonah puts it on the newspaper headline spider-man hero or menace and so peter's like menace why is he a menace he's just trying to help people so anyway blah 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 here and here is the plot twist so spider-man has not met green goblin yet Right now, Peter Parker's just fighting crime, getting paid for his pictures, trying to do good, make up for Uncle Ben. But the Green Goblin is about to introduce himself to the world because his company is sold out from underneath him. Right. And uh, and they, they, they say that uh, the, the deal will only go through if uh, Norman is not on the board anymore. So they tell him he has to resign. And Norman gets pissed. He screams at him in the board meeting. And he, he kind of realizes that Everything he's worked for to his life is slipping out under his fingertips. And he has, doesn't know what to do. Yeah. So then it cuts to like a, a big parade that Osgorp is uh, sponsoring. Yeah, let's talk about that. This is the big standout, probably the big scene in the movie everyone would have remembered at the time. The uh, It's called the World Unity Festival. Apparently everybody in New York City is here. It's this big, huge outdoor concert, parade, festival. Uh, Oscorp is about is going to announce their purchase by Quest Laboratories at the thing. All the board of directors are there. And Norman is going to show up in his full Green Goblin costume for the first time to basically attack the festival and kill all the board of directors from his company. And this is where he's going to run into Spider-Man because Peter is there taking pictures that day. Right, right. Um... Like, and and even at that time, he's still, like, obsessed with Mary Jane. Like, he sees, like, her and uh, Harry talking on 
one of the balconies of the building. Harry tries to, to kiss her. She kind of, like, shirks him off. She's interested, but not that interested in him. So, like, he, and Peter is kind of, like, uh, spying on them through, like, the zoom lens on his camera. So he's still being kind of creepy to uh, Mary Jane. Like, something funny in those, like, a lot of stuff like Peter does, and he's kind of being kind of creepy with when, when Mary Jane's around. Like, he, he follows her around. He kind of watches to see what she's doing. Well, in all fairness, she is stalkworthy, so she's got a stalker, but it's a nice stalker. It's Peter. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so, so that's happening. But then all of a sudden, like the the Green Goblin glider is is seen in the in the sky. He flies into uh, where the parade is happening, and he starts throwing bombs at the buildings, causing massive explosions. Everyone's running away. Peter has to like save people from getting uh, crushed by like rubble and debris. Yeah, why don't you talk about the Green Goblin's weapons? Because I know these are pretty famous in the comic books. His little pumpkin bombs. Right, right. Like I know that in the, in the comic, like they they definitely lean a lot more into like him being like a, a monster. Like he has like the animated face. He has bombs that literally look like pumpkins, but here they're just like orange balls. Yeah, there's something that Norman Osborn could have invented, like little hand grenades. Right, right. Because like they were designing weapons for the military. This is stuff that. They're planning on having the military use if they wanted to. But some of the stuff is like really weird. Like the actual thing he uses to kill the board members, it's another one of those bombs. Like when it flashes, like it burns off all the flesh and skin on their bodies. There's nothing left but skeletons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a legitimately scary scene. And I can see why kids might not have liked this scene when the Green Goblin flies in and starts pumpkin bombing everybody and blowing people up and turning them into skeletons and yeah, this is a big action sequence. The first one in the movie where Peter has to turn into Spider-Man because the Green Goblin blows up this balcony. And it's not so much that they're the board of directors are up there, but MJ is up there too, and he has to save MJ. Right. There's, there's another there's another part of that that, 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 that I've never forgotten. It, it always ticked me off. Like there's this one kid like standing in the middle of the of the street. Uh, chaos is going on all around him. Like like part of the stage is being like crumbling and he's just like standing there not moving at all and he's just like completely oblivious to the world and and even spider-man's like come on move get out of the way and then he just has to like swing down there and like push him right before he gets crushed <laughs> yeah this is i i don't want to spend too much time going through the minutiae of the scene but it's a fun attack scene green goblin shows up spider-man fights him they end up on the glider together at the same time green goblin smashes him into a wall it's just a fun little special effects showcase for both their powers, and we learn that they're both superhuman, super strong, super fast. And I think at the end of the the fight, Spider-Man wins. Even though Spider-Man's getting the crap kicked out of him, he wins because he pulls the wires out of the Green Goblin's uh, glider, and it goes shooting off into space. And the Green Goblin's like, we shall meet again, Spider-Man! And that's how it ends for the first time. Right, so so, it, so it, was, it was more like a stalemate at this point. Uh, Pete... Uh, the Green Goblin got what he wanted. He he killed the board members, but uh, Spider-Man got him to, to go away before he could do more damage. He saves Mary Jane. They swing away happily together. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting things when I was watching this movie is that there's actually not that much Spider-Man versus Green Goblin in it because there's an hour of, you know, character building, world building, you know, setting up the origin story of Spider-Man. So by the time the Green Goblin and Spider-Man fight, we're already an hour into a two-hour movie. Right, but 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 if but the movie goes by fast. It does. Yeah, it, it flies from here on out. But I was going to say, this is one of my arguments with when they reboot superhero movies. 
Like, oh, Spider-Man, then Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3. Oh, let's do Spider-Man 1 again. Because uh, the first movie always has to waste a good 40 minutes to an hour on origin story, which always bugs me. They did that the first time they rebooted, but the second time they just they just skipped the origin. You know who Spider-Man is. The, but but at that point, it becomes how, how he's interacting with the other heroes in the, in the Marvel Universe. It's not really his story anymore. It's about him along with like the rest of the people in the heroes that he's trying to get the respect of. Please tell me they at least killed Uncle Ben. Oh, Uncle Ben's nowhere to be seen in the latest Spider-Man series. What, they don't like pull him out of his casket and kill him again? <laughs> and Aunt May's like, who's going to make our rice? We'll never have rice again without Uncle Ben. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Had to get that in there somewhere. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, the Green Goblin is out of here, and uh, and this is where uh, Norman Osborn goes home. And he's like, what have I done? I've killed all these people. And this is where we get the scene where he's talking to himself, right? The evil versus good version. This this is this is a definite highlight of, like, Willem Dafoe just knocking it out of the park. <laughs> he, cause he starts like Norman Osborn, like here's the green goblin laugh in his mind. He, he's like, who's there? And he's like, follow the shiver down your spine or something like that. And then he just sees himself in the mirror and his reflection is talking to him. And he, and he holds up the newspaper he was holding and says, you killed him. We killed him. <laughs> But, but now that they got what they wanted, the, the the board member's dead. There's no one else in Oscorp, like, having control. But So then their goal next comes, like, Spider-Man. They see he could either be a great enemy or a great ally. So the next, so their next goal is to see if they can get Spider-Man on their side. Yeah, because that's the only person who could ever stop the Green Goblin. Now, Oscorp is out of business, and Norman Osborn is basically 70% Green Goblin, 30% himself. But he's going to need some industry to support himself. I'm assuming it's making pumpkin bombs. That might be his new industry. I don't know. <laughs> but he doesn't want Spider-Man to stop him. So, yeah, this is where he breaks into the Daily Bugle to find Joe J. Jonah Jameson said, tell me who's taking pictures of Spider-Man. And Spider-Man shows up, and the Green Goblin gasses him. That's how he gets Spider-Man. Yeah, one, one interesting thing is, like, like, Jameson actually doesn't sell Peter out. Like, Peter was in the office, like, a minute right before the Green Goblin came in. And when, when the Goblin targets him, telling him where where he where he's getting the pictures who the photographer is he doesn't tell him who peter is he yeah he would have eventually i have to think right yeah jameson's gonna talk jameson's an interesting character like when you like when you get down to it there's a bit more depth to him in the other movies but for now he's just like a guy like who, who cares a lot about paper cares a lot about selling the paper selling the stories yeah there's the big long stretch of movie here where the green goblin's trying to get Spider-Man to join him. Spider-Man won't. Spider-Man just keeps, you know, fighting crime. There's this, this is the famous scene where he saves MJ again. He's forever saving this lady. <laughs> and they end up with the upside-down kiss that was, like, the big deal at the time. Oh, yeah, that's another one of, like, the big, like, uh, iconic moments of the movie. <laughs> and I read this somewhere that Tobey Maguire hated that scene because it was filmed in the rain, and he's filming upside-down, and his sinuses kept filling up with water, and it was so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it... it, it... But they, they were macking for a while. Like I think it's like a good like twenty, thirty seconds or something. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a romantic movie at heart. That's the thing. Raimi never lets you forget the fact that it's really just a story about a guy and a girl. But he does kiss MJ. He finally gets to kiss her, although she kisses Spider Man. Anyway, blah blah blah. Let's get back to the fighting stuff. So this is where we end up. Uh, the scene where 
Green Goblin tricks Spider-Man into going up into a building to save a burning baby, and they fight again because the Green Goblin's like, you didn't want to join me. You just want to be a fool, a hero. And this one, this is one that culminates with the Green Goblin actually beating Spider-Man in a fight and cuts his arm with one of those little blades. Yeah, he, yeah, he throws, like, these, like, little, like, drones that have, like, razor blades on them. I think, I think they're, like, bats or something like that. So, like, and then Spider-Man does, like, a, like, a big Matrix-y slow-mo dodge sequence or all the rage back then. Yeah, this was a cool scene. I like this shot. Yeah, but one of them gets him on the arm, and then, and then after fighting some more, Spider-Man has to run away. And so now Green Goblin knows that Spider-Man is on his side. Now he has to be taken out. Yeah. And Spider-Man can be wounded. One of the one of the Goblin's blades cuts Spider-Man's arm. And this leads to a pretty tense scene, the next scene, where Norman Osborn comes over to visit Harry for dinner. It's like Thanksgiving, and Aunt May is there. And, uh, right. and this is where Peter has a cut on his arm, and it makes Norman suspicious. Why does Peter Parker have a cut on his arm? Right. And earlier... Earlier, actually, when Spider-Man came back to the apartment, he was still in his Spider-Man costume. But since everyone was there, they went up to his room to look for him. But so he had to hide on the ceiling, and and he almost gets away with it. But then, like a single drop of blood falls from his cut, lands on the floor. No, Norman notices it. He looks up at the ceiling. He's not there. Spider-Man's actually outside on the wall of the building, hiding from him. So then he, then eventually Peter shows up. Coming up, coming upstairs, says hello to everyone. Then they have dinner, and then while they're having dinner, they notice that Peter has a cut on his arm, and he, he says like, oh, "A biker messenger uh, clipped me while I was while I was walking here." Yeah, but from here on out, this is a very tense scene, one of the most tense in the movie, where Peter's hiding from Norman up on the ceiling, trying not to let his blood drip, give away that he's Spider-Man. But from here on out, Norman Osborn knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Right. So now that he knows that Peter is Spider-Man, his strategy is to first attack the heart. So he goes after his Peter's loved ones, first by uh, bombing Aunt May's house. <laughs> Aunt May goes through a lot of shit in these movies. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. In this one, she gets firebombed by the Green Goblin. Yeah, because, like you said, the Green Goblin's strategy now is he can't really defeat Spider-Man, but I can defeat everybody he loves. So he goes after Aunt May, tries to kill her. She ends up in the hospital. And then uh, then Norman finds out that Peter is now dating MJ. MJ is date is dumped Harry Osborn. He's she is dating Peter. And now Norman's like, I can go after MJ as well, his girlfriend. And this leads to the other big standout scene in the movie, the uh, the bridge scene. Right, right. So so the way uh, Nor the way the Green Goblin has to set it up, he's going to make Spider-Man choose between either the woman he loves or let a bunch of innocent people die because like he has. Mary Jane in one hand, and in the other hand, he has the cable of like a cable car that he's cut down. He's going to let them go. He's going to let both of them drop into the river. Spider-Man has to choose which one he saves. So Spider-Man, because he's so massively in love with Mary Jane, he goes after Mary Jane first. He catches her, but then he swings right under the bridge. He, he grabs the cable of the cable car before it lands in the river. He's holding onto uh, the cable car in one arm. He has his web tied to the bridge with the other arm so he's kind of stuck now he's, he's trapped this is the this is the big moment that i talked about earlier where spider-man's kind of holding up the tram full of all these poor kids and mj they're dangling from a web from this big bridge in uh new york somewhere and green goblin comes down to kill spider-man once and for all he's got these blades on his jet jet glider that can impale spider-man 
But before he can do it, the city of New York is going to help Spider-Man for the first time ever. Right. Like a bunch, there's a bunch of bystanders on the bridge are watching everything happen when Green Goblin swoops in to land the finishing blow on Spider-Man. They start chucking things at the Green Goblin. And, and you get like a whole crowd of people like just, just booing him and, 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 and mocking him and throwing more shit at him. And he's like, hey, you, you pick on Spider-Man, you're messing with New York. They're like, hey, stop trying to kill kids, Green Goblin. So it's like that's the thing in the press. It's been it's been advertised that Spidey and the Green Goblin are in cahoots. They work together. But this is the scene where the public finally realizes Spider-Man's against the Green Goblin, and they start throwing stuff down. They're like, "You mess with Spider-Man, you mess with all of us." They're like, "Yeah." And like I said, this scene comes off very jingoistic and corny to a modern audience. But in 2002, in May of 2002, the audience would have cheered at that really hard. That was a big moment that people needed to see in a movie. To be honest. I'd argue it holds up even now. Like, I know I know that a lot of superheroes are like a lot more blatant with like, we're American, we're the good guys. But like, this feels a lot more sincere. Yeah. Than like what what came, what came after it. I think if I remember right, they actually like when they were doing like reshoots, they kind of like hammered that the whole uh, Spider-Man equals New York thing a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they 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 inserted more for sure. Yeah, they definitely uh, peppered up because like they did reshoots like after 9/11, I think. And that's probably the sincerity that people say this movie has that maybe later Spider-Man movies don't have. This movie is so earnest. It's like it wears its heart right on its sleeve what it's trying yeah, to do. Yeah, it's a very optimistic movie when you think about it. And are the other ones like that? I don't I don't know. The, I know that the other Spider-Man movies like definitely makes Peter struggle a lot more. He definitely fucks up a lot more. He has a lot, a lot more problems, a lot more struggles, he, he, a lot more failures. I think Peter wins in this movie more than he does in the other movies. Oh, good. Okay. And that that's got to be a Sam Raimi thing cuz Raimi's such a he's such a childlike filmmaker. I just cannot picture him doing super dark stuff like that. Is Sam Raimi like the kind of uh, filmmaker like when he has a hero, he makes the hero unquestionably win. <laughs> there's there's not, not a lot of uh, bittersweet endings unless you're uh, Ash Williams fighting zombies. Uh, yeah, I, uh, for people who know Sam Raimi, I apologize for saying that because that's so completely off. I just realized the ending to Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and uh, Drag Me to Hell. So I apologize. But yeah, he's very earnest in his storytelling. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more often than not, the, the good guy... <laughs> When the good guy wins, he wins very big. When the bad guy wins, the bad guy wins very big. Let's put it at that. You got to see Drag Me to Hell. Let me just reiterate that one more time. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, Spider-Man is saved by the citizens of New York who stopped the Green Goblin from impaling him. And this is where we go into the final fight. I always forget the final fight happens right here. There's only ten minutes left in the movie at this point. Yeah, like we said, Sam Raimi's like very fast-paced. He doesn't waste a second. Like, as soon as... uh. The, the the people are saved. Green Goblin like grabs him and he he pulls him into like an abandoned building and starts beating the shit out of him. Yeah, yeah. This is where uh, Peter takes a pumpkin bomb to the face that basically blows off his mask, so he's exposed, so Norman can see who he's fighting. And Peter just gets yeah his ass beat here. And this is a really great fight. It's a very back good back and forth. Lots of violence. Lots of good special effects. And it really culminates with uh the green no. No, that's right. Green Goblin's going to kill Spider-Man. And then Green Goblin says, after I kill you, I'll kill MJ. And like that gives Peter the strength to fight back, knowing if he dies, MJ dies too. So he, he rallies just for her. Right. Uh, also, also, if you notice, like when Green Goblin says he's going to go after MJ next, 
he's holding uh, like a like a spear, a very long, pointy spear. You can make the connections. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Paging Dr. Freud, yeah. So yeah, so Peter fights for the honor of MJ. He uh, trips Green Goblin up. He takes like a crumbling wall. He pulls it down onto uh, the Green Goblin. He, he, he climbs out of the bricks, but then Peter swings in, grabs him, throws him into the rafters, punches him out even more. But then, then as he's uh, kicking Green Goblin's ass, uh, Norman Osborn's voice calls out, begging him to stop, and he takes off the helmet. That's when Peter realizes that the Green Goblin has been Norman the entire time. Yeah, that's the thing, though. It, with the scene in the bedroom earlier where he's hiding from Norman, you get the sense he was probably suspecting Norman maybe the Green Goblin before. That's I'm always kind of curious where he realizes Norman's actually the Green Goblin. I mean, I don't know if it. I don't know if uh, Peter really like, knew that the Norman was the Green Goblin, but he, I think it was just more like trying to keep his identity a secret. Oh, you're right. Okay. But uh, but he definitely does get nervous when Norman starts being suspicious okay that's right so this this is the first moment in the movie he realizes his surrogate father the science guy who uh, uh, comes to think of himself as a scientist as well the <laughs> now he's been the villain he's been fighting all along and peter's horrified peter can't kill norman osborne he loves this guy and this is where we get the ending that was especially brutal for this movie i kind of forgot how brutal this is right right so it starts with like the green goblin saying we're family, Peter. I've always been like a father to you. And as he's saying it, he's using like a remote control on the suit to like set up the glider so it's hovering behind Peter. Then Peter says, I had a father. He was he was Uncle Ben. And then then the Green Goblin goes, Godspeed, Spider-Man. Then Peter uses spider sense to notice that the glider is right behind him as its spear is pointing out. It's charging right at him. But then Peter does a backflip to get out of the way. And that leaves the that only leaves a Norman Osborn right in the way of the glider. And it does like a very fast zoom in. And then you get like a very, you get a split second communic moment when the zoom in happens and you get like a still of Norman going, oh. And then you get stabbed. It's definitely one of the most like memorable like villain deaths in like a superhero movie. And it comes out of nowhere. Just all of a sudden, Norman Osborn gets this really violent impaling from his own uh, glider. And I have to think, I know Sam Raimi movies, if this is an Evil Dead movie, that glider's going right into his face, right into his eyeballs. But because it's a PG-13 Spider-Man movie, it just goes into his stomach instead. So that's Raimi showing a little uh, restraint. Maybe, because, like, it kind of goes into his stomach. I, I I always saw that the glider, like, hit him, like, right in the waist. Yeah, kind of down there. It breaks him in half, basically. Yeah, like, cracks his spine, probably cracks his junk. But either either way, Norman is dead. He he begs Peter to not tell Harry as he as he dies impaled on the glider. Yeah, so Spider-Man kills two people in this movie, although not uh, directly, just by getting out of the way or somebody stumbles during a fight with him. So, but he is responsible for two deaths in this movie, technically. Three if you count Uncle Ben. Three, and we we always count Uncle Ben, of course. Never forget. So, so then. Peter brings uh, Norman's body back to his house. And again, this is just such a blatant setup for a sequel. I kind of wish the scene wasn't in here where Peter brings the body of Norman back to the house and Norman's son, Harry, comes in and says, who are you? Why did you kill my father? And Spider-Man runs off and Harry, like, I will vow until the end of my days to kill you, Spider-Man. And really, there's no reason for that to be there except as a sequel setup. Right. It, it, is a, it is a good sequel setup. Like, I really like, like, the stuff they do with with Harry in the, in the second movie, but 
But in terms of, like, Spider-Man being, like, a standalone movie, you don't really need that stuff with Harry. And I was reading some contemporary reviews, and that's one of the things that some of the people that didn't like the movie pointed out, that it's really, at the end, it's really clearly set up for a sequel. They don't like movies that are blatantly set up for sequels, so. Yeah, it's definitely, like, showing its cards cards there. Like, after you get the setup with uh, Spider-Man and Harry and how their dynamic will be going forward, you get, you get a Norman Osborn's funeral, and then immediately after that, you get Peter Parker at the grave of Uncle Ben, and then Mary Jane comes up, and he's... He says, when I was being saved by Spider-Man, when I was almost dying, I wasn't thinking about Spider-Man. I was thinking about you, Peter. And then they, then they kiss at Uncle Ben's grave. <laughs> yes. I often kiss in front of my parents' grave. I find that's the optimal place to do it. <laughs> but, but, but after they do that, Spider-Man re- or Peter realizes that as Spider-Man, he's going to be in a lot of danger. And that means his loved ones are going to be in a lot of danger as well. So he kind of uh, lets... Mary Jane down. He tells her that he'll always love her as a friend. He gives the George Costanza. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> yeah. So he dumps MJ after pining after her the whole movie. He realizes when she's in love with him that if he's Spider-Man, someone's going to find out they're going to come after her. He cannot be romantic with her ever. So he's like, we'll just be friends. And with that, he kind of walks off and leaves her to cry. But he's like, uh, I will always be your friend, but that's all I have to offer. And it's a, actually kind of a sad moment. Like, like there are, it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Like you actually like have scenes of like Peter being worried that like nor, that uh, the Green Goblin was going after the people he loved. Like the power he has as a hero, that responsibility comes with a uh, hardship as well, and he has to be responsible with how he deals that that hardship. Yeah. And this is something that that was gone through in uh, the original Superman movies with Christopher Reeve. There's a whole subplot, especially in two, how. Superman cannot know love. That's part of the trade-off. If you're a superhero, you are not allowed to know love because a hero doesn't have that luxury. So this is this is a common trope in superhero movies. I'm glad it was brought up again. Great quote here from Peter. He says, uh, no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, the ones I love will always be the ones who pay. And so he just is not willing to let her ever pay. Although she does, when they kiss the last time she recognizes the kiss and i think she realizes he's spider-man right they don't say anything but that, that that's a, that's very that's very good i never considered that before then, then again like an upside down kiss is probably a lot different than a right side up kiss. yeah exactly so. there's probably still a lot of uh hmm maybe i don't know maybe i'll have to kiss him again yeah the teeth are in a different place there's water up the nose it's a little different <laughs> i'll have to try next time at the next funeral yeah, well, we, you know, just to be sure, we should make out in front of Uncle Bren's grave a little more. <laughs> and then this is the final montage of kind of Peter walking off into the sunset, deciding to be Spider-Man as a full-time uh, career now. And he says, whatever life holds in store for me, I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. This is my curse. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. When you're hearing it in Tobey Maguire's voice, it's, it's not as grand as how you put it, because like Toby Gore has like a voice to him that's like a little high pitched. It's just harder to do dramatic lines that well, but it, it still worked in that moment. Not it didn't work as well as it could have, but it still worked. I'm proud to hear that I've topped Toby Maguire, That I should have been Spider Man. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we still have a long way to go. We got to see how you 
fit in that costume first. Yeah, that's the thing. I have not done the workout. I don't know how to climb like a spider. I don't know. My uncle's not dead. I don't really know if I've prepared for this. <laughs> yeah, so really that's the end of the movie, and that's, a uh, again, a big superhero movie for its time. At the time, the sixth highest grossing movie of all time. Whole, held the record for most money made in one day. Like, they thought it would probably be a hit. They did not think it would be that big a hit. It opened the door to Spider-Man 2, which we both agree is probably the better of the Spider-Man movies. It opened the door to Spider-Man 3, which, uh, would you like to comment on Spider-Man 3? Um, it's hard to comment on Spider-Man 3. <laughs> That's all I'll say. You know what? I, I saw it in a theater, and I was so underwhelmed. I'm like, I'm not watching any more Spider-Man movies. And I know Sam Raimi quit. Tobey Maguire quit. It was done. And that was kind of the consensus. I watched it again just about a month ago for the first time in about 10, 15 years. It's not as bad as I remember. It just has too many villains. They have that Venom subplot should not be there. It should just be Sandman. It would it would actually be a really good movie if they'd stuck to one villain, I think. Oh, yeah. Everyone agrees that they try to do way too much in Spider-Man 3. Like, you have, like, the Venom stuff of Peter being corrupted, of Peter being evil. You have the stuff with Harry Osborn coming into the forefront with him, uh, finally making his moves to get revenge on Peter. You have the Sandman, who they try to pull off as the real killer of Uncle Ben. Mm -hmm. So now Peter has someone else to be vengeful towards. Yeah, but I would argue the Sandman stuff is fantastic. Like, some of the Sandman story is as good as anything in Spider-Man 1 and 2. And I feel bad that it's clogged up in such a mess of a movie, because there's some really neat stuff in 3 that, like, I'm not going to do it on staff picks, but I don't think it's as bad as its reputation. It's Oh, yeah, even today, you'll still find people who will rave about how great the special effects were for, like, Sandman becoming sand for the first time. Yeah, and he was so sympathetic as a character. I can just imagine there was a great movie in there somewhere, and Sam Raimi was probably so furious that the studio made him throw in Venom, throw in the, the second Goblin. But there's there's the semblance of a great movie, and I really wish it would have it would have worked. Yeah, there's a semblance of a great movie, and then there's a semblance of two other great movies kind of, cr of cramping it. Yeah, it's, again, just too much too soon. I can see why Raimi eventually wanted nothing to do with it, why they had to reboot. and But I do think it's a shame because one and two are really special movies. But I had to talk about this first one just because, like you said, it occupies a really interesting point in time where it basically started all these huge mega superhero movies. Right, like, like it's it's easy to see Spider-Man as like the beginning of like a trend that would that would take like the next two decades of Hollywood filmmaking mm -hmm. and like really dictate how movies are made, which movies are made. But if you look at it on its own merits, on its own rights, like ignoring everything else, it holds up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, other than perhaps the HD special effects, which I'm not even aware of because I don't have that kind of a TV. But yeah, other than that. The heart is here, the purity is here, the soul of this movie, the innocence. It's really well done for a superhero movie. And I think I've read, someone said the other day that, uh, you know, that first Spider-Man movie, that would never be made today. It's not the way they make superhero movies anymore. Oh, yeah. Like, they, they, they did cram so much fan service in there. They tried to, like, put another hero in there so they can make a movie with that hero in. But with this, it's just all Spider-Man all the time. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, I love that there's a cameo in here by Stan Lee. Stan Lee makes a cameo in this movie. Yep, that's tradition. And in fitting with Stan Lee, fitting with Stan Lee, he's saving a little girl from a falling building. Yep. He doesn't get a, he doesn't get a line in this one, but he does get to do something heroic. <laughs> 
But yeah, I just love this movie so much. And again, I have such a love-hate aversion to superhero movie culture that anytime someone will pitch a superhero movie to me, it will be met with the iciest silence I could possibly give to anybody. But you found the one, my friend. You found the Spider-Man movie and the Sam Raimi crossover that I wanted to talk about. So well done. Mm, thank you. I feel honored. And then I love, again, to finish off that Sam Raimi, biggest movie director in the world for a couple years, makes these huge Spider-Man movies, huge blockbusters, then gets tired of the big studio interference and he gets tired of the pressure of making a big movie. And he's like, you know what? I think I'll go make a horror movie where people are vomited on and there's a talking goat. So I appreciated the career arc he took after that. Mm, he went back to his roots. He did. He really did. And again, I cannot say enough about Drag Me to Hell, one of the greatest movies ever made. Okay, do you have anything else to say about superheroes, the franchise, superhero movies in general? Anything before we sign off? One one last fact. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Sam Raimi is actually doing another uh, superhero movie. Like, next year, like, the new Doctor Strange movie, that's him, Doctor Strange 2. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, like, uh, Doctor Strange is, like, is like the more mystical uh, Marvel superhero. He has, he's a magician, the master of mysticism or whatever and uh there's like a whole bunch of like interdimensional threats that are going on in that movie <laughs> so naturally they would want someone as creative and zany as sam Raimi to really capture that <laughs> but it's a sequel so i don't know if you'll ever see it i was just saying i love that we're pulling out these fourth and fifth tier superheroes that now deserve movies <laughs> here's firestorm firestorm's gonna be in a movie next year <laughs> now does dr strange kill uncle ben at any point <laughs> well well the whole the whole gimmick of that movie is that they're going into the multiverse they're going to different different versions of the marvel universe so there is a non-zero chance they'll wind up in a universe where uncle ben is still alive so maybe we'll see <laughs> excellent Raimi can kill him again yeah. <laughs> he'll be ripped apart by a deadite it'll be awesome <laughs> All right, well, I apologize to people who love superhero movies. I don't like them at all. I uh, have been very vocal in my distaste for superhero culture. But, again, Spider-Man's one I have a very soft spot for. And, again, the, the point that it occupied in time right after 9-11, the movie that really kind of got people to go to movies again and cheer for movies again, this was a big deal. So I just hope that comes across to people. Right, right. And, and yeah, I really enjoy having your perspective on this because – we come at this from like two different generations. You're a late Gen X. I'm late millennial. So it's interesting to see like the different things we take away from this, the different uh, things this movie means to both of us. Yeah, that's all. honestly one of my favorite things about this show is I get to talk to people who are a lot younger than me. So we get to see movies from different perspectives. Now, if I just talk to people who are like me, it's not very interesting to me because I know what I think. <laughs> I don't need to talk to the children of the 80s who grew up on the Goonies and Gremlins and watched them every weekend. Like, that's that's me. So I always have fun talking to people who approach these from a different perspective. And you can explain stuff like the history of superhero movies after, which I have no interest in. So, <laughs> again, I just I just like doing episodes like this. I'm glad you were available. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you had me on. Now, my next... My next mission is to find hosts who are really much older than me, where I'm the now the kid talking to them, which I have not done yet. Well, then you have to actually like find like a, a movie that's the actual perfect touchstone and uh, the crossing of generations. Exactly. I'm not really sure what uh, 
Gen Z and uh, the Baby Boomers had in common in terms of that. 60s. We'll be talking about some 60s movies, 70s movies. That's my next goal. I just have not found too many hosts that are older than me. Again, I'm only 47, but that's one of the things when you're an internet comedy writer, trying to write about pop culture and like reality TV, almost all my readers are younger than me. So it's interesting to find someone who's older. That's the goal. Hmm. Well, I wish you luck in, in finding an, a proper elderly person with a working computer with Skype. <laughs> yeah, I just I just troll rest homes and stuff. I go around and say, who has Skype? And it's like, oh, who has a computer? <laughs> computer. Who's heard of a computer? All right, so yeah, that's the challenge. Anyway, thank you for joining me on the show. Again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll be killing Uncle Ben in the process. <laughs> I'll talk to you guys later. Remember your great responsibilities. Bye. Rest in peace, Uncle Ben. I'd like a job, sir. No jobs? Freelance. Best thing in the world for a kid your age. You bring me some more shots of that newspaper-selling clown, maybe I'll take him off your hands. But I never said you have a job. Meat. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas meat. Best I can do. Get out of here.